Day, middle of the weekday, over the hill day, closer to Friday than we were on Monday. That's always a good thing. Glad to have you with us on a cloudy afternoon. 42 degrees outside. Dry, at least. So, got to be happy about that. Uh, when we get to the weekend, it's looking like it's going to be sunny. And we're going to be in the upper 50s. So, looks like Super Bowl weekend will be a good one for us here in uh, Arkansas. We're going to go to the Senate today because the question period has begun in the impeachment trial. And I know you'd like to hear the questions and hear the answers that are being offered. So we'll do that. Coming up at 335, Congressman Hill will join us from D.C. 4 o'clock, the car and truck doctors. 5 o'clock, I'll do a little topical stuff and then we'll play back at 535 the interview that we did with Congressman Hill for the people who are on their way home and didn't get a chance to hear it, because he always has really interesting things to talk about. So with that said, we'll break at times because we do have to pay the bills, but let's go to the Senate, the well of the Senate, as President Trump's impeachment trial continues. Uh, And I can't imagine imagine any circumstance where we would want to say the President of the United States can target his rival, can solicit illicit foreign help in an election, uh, can help him cheat, um, and that's okay. Because that will dramatically lower the bar uh, for what we have a right to expect in the President of the United States, and that is they're acting in our interests. So I would say it's wrong for President of the United States to be asking for political prosecutions by his own Justice Department. I would say it's wrong for President of the United States to ask a foreign power uh, to engage in an investigation of his political rival, but particularly where, as we have shown here, there is no merit to that investigation is even more egregious. And you know there's no merit to it because he didn't even want the investigation. And the more accurate parallel, Senator, would be if, if Barack Obama said, I don't even need you, Russia, to do the investigation, I just want you to announce it. Because that betrays the fact there was no legitimate basis. Because the president didn't even need the investigation done. He just wanted it announced. And there is no legitimate explanation for that, except he wanted their help in cheating in the next election. Thank you, Mr. Manager. The Senator from Michigan. Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question to the desk. Thank you. The question from Senator Peters is for the House managers. Does the phrase or other high crimes and misdemeanors in Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution require a violation of the U.S. Criminal Code or is a breach of public trust sufficient? Please explain. Framers were very clear that abuse of power is an impeachable offense. In explaining why the Constitution must allow impeachment, Edmund Randolph warned that, quote, the executive will have great opportunities of abusing his power. Alexander Hamilton described high crimes and misdemeanors 
as offenses which proceed from the abuse or violation of some public trust. The framers also described what it meant. It was impeachable for a president to abuse his pardon power to shelter people he was connected with in a suspicious manner. Future Supreme Court Justice James Iredell said the president would be liable to impeachment if he'd acted from some corrupt motive or other, or if he was willfully abusing his trust. As was later stated in a treatise summarizing centuries of common law, abuse of power occurs if a public officer entrusted with definite powers to be exercised for the benefit of the community wickedly abuses or fraudulently exceeds them. So when the framers said this, that abuse of power was impeachable, it wasn't just an empty, uh, meaningless uh, state. Remember, the founders had been participating with overthrowing the British government, a king who was not accountable. They incorporated the impeachment power into the Constitution, late actually, in the drafting of the Constitution. They knew that they were giving the president many powers, and they specified if he abused them that those powers could be taken away. Now, the prior articles that the Congress has had on impeachment did not include specific crimes. President Nixon was charged with abusing his power, targeting political opponents, engaging in a cover-up. Now, there was conduct specified. Some of it was clearly criminal. Some of it was not. But it was all impeachable because it was corrupt and it was abusing his power. Um, in the House Judiciary Committee, we had witnesses called by both Republicans and Democrats, and the Republican-invited constitutional law expert, Jonathan Turley, testified unequivocally that it is possible to establish a case for impeachment based on a non-criminal allegation of abuse of power. Uh, every presidential impeachment, including this one, has included conduct that violated the law, but each presidential impeachment has included the charges directly under the Constitution. Uh, it's important to note that a, a specific criminal law violation was not in the minds of the founders, and it wouldn't make any sense today. You could have a criminal law violation, you could, you could deface a, a post office box. That would be a violation of federal law. We would laugh at the idea that that would be a basis for impeachment. That is not abuse of presidential powers. It might be a crime. And yet you could have activities that are so dangerous to our Constitution that are not a crime that would be charged as an impeachable offense because they are an abuse of power. That's what the, fa the framers worried about. That's why they put the impeachment clause in the Constitution. And frankly, they opined that because of the impeachment clause, no executive would dare exceed their powers. Regrettably, that prediction did not prove true, which is why we are here today with President Trump having abused his broad powers to the detriment of our national interest 
for a corrupt purpose, his own personal interests. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Chief Justice. Oh, Senator, thank you. Mr. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I send a question to the desk on, be- on behalf of myself and Senator Murkowski. Thank you, Senator. Senators, ask counsel for the president. Describe in further detail your contention that all subpoenas issued prior to the passage of House Resolution 660 are an exercise of invalid subpoena authority by the House committees. Mr. Chief Justice, thank you, Senators, for that question. As I explained the other day, this contention is based on a principle that has been laid out in several Supreme Court cases uh, explaining that the Constitution assigns powers to each House of the legislative branch, to the House of Representatives or to the Senate. And in particular, the language of the Constitution is clear in um, Article One that the sole power of impeachment is assigned to the House. That's to the House of Representatives as a body. It's not assigned to any committee, to a subcommittee, or to any particular member of the House. And in cases such as Roomley versus United States and um, uh, the United States versus Watkins, the court has been called, there are disputes about subpoenas. They're not specifically in the impeachment context, but they establish a general rule, a principle, that whenever a committee of either body of Congress issues a subpoena to someone, and that person resists the subpoena, the courts will examine what was the authority of that committee or subcommittee to issue that subpoena. And it has to be traced back to some authorizing rule or resolution from the House of Representatives itself, for example, in a House subcommittee. And the courts will examine, the the Supreme Court has made clear that that is the charter of the committee's authority. It gets its authority solely from an action by the House itself. That requires a vote of the House, either to establish the committee by resolution or to establish by rule the standing authority of that committee. And if the committee cannot trace its authority to a rule or a resolution from the House, then its subpoena is invalid. And the Supreme Court's made clear in those cases such subpoenas are null and void because they're ultra viris. They are beyond the power of the committee to issue. They can't be enforced. And our point here is very simple. There is no standing rule in the House that provides the uh, committees that were issuing subpoenas here uh, under the, the leadership of Manager Schiff the authority to use the impeachment power to issue subpoenas. Rule 10 of the House defines the legislative jurisdiction of committees. It doesn't mention the word impeachment even once. And so no committee under Rule 10 was given the authority to issue subpoenas for impeachment purposes. And this has always been the case in every presidential impeachment in the history of the nation. There has always been a resolution from the House first to authorize a committee to use the power of impeachment before it attempted to issue compulsory process. So in this case, there was no resolution from the House. The authority, the sole power of impeachment, remained with the House of Representatives itself. And Speaker Pelosi, by herself, did not have authority, merely by talking to a group of reporters on September 24th, to give the powers of the House to any particular committee to start issuing subpoenas. 
So the subpoenas that were issued were invalid when they were issued. And then five weeks later, on October 31st, when the House finally adopted House Resolution 660 that authorized from that point, purported to authorize at least from that point, the um, issuance of subpoenas, nothing in that resolution addressed the subpoenas that had already been issued. It didn't even attempt, it didn't purport to say the ones that have already been issued were going to try to retroactively give authority for that. It's a separate question whether that could have been done legally. They didn't even attempt to do it. And this is all explained in the um, opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel, which is in our trial memorandum attached as Appendix C. And it's a very detailed and thorough opinion, 37 pages of legal reasoning. But it explains all of this. The basic principle that applies generally, the history that it has always been done this way. There has always, in every presidential impeachment, been an authorizing resolution from the House, and the fact that there was none here. So there was no authority for those subpoenas. And that means that 23 subpoenas that were issued were invalid. And this was explained, as I pointed out the other day, in letters from the administration to the committees. A letter from the White House, from OMB, I think the State Department. And in very specific terms, it set out this rationale. So that is the basis on which those subpoenas were invalid and they were properly resisted by the administration. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The senator from Pennsylvania. Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question to the desk. Thank you. The question is directed to the House managers. In Federalist 65, Alexander Hamilton writes that the subjects of impeachment are, quote, those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men or, in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust, end quote. Could you speak broadly to the duties of being a public servant and how you believe the president's actions have violated this trust? Mr. Chief Justice, uh, members of the Senate, President Trump used the powers of his office to solicit a foreign nation to interfere in our elections for his own benefit. Then he actively obstructed Congress in his attempts to investigate his abuses of power. These actions are clearly impeachable. The key purpose of the impeachment clause is to control abuses of power by public officials. That is to say, conduct that violates the public trust. Since the founding of the Republic, all impeachments have been based on accusations of conduct that violates the public trust. When the framers wrote the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors, they intended to capture the conduct of public officials like President Trump who showed no respect for their oath of office. President Trump ignored the law and the Constitution in order to gain a political favor. The Constitution and his oath of office prohibited him from using his official favor to corruptly benefit himself rather than the American people. That's exactly what the president did, illegally withholding military aid and a White House meeting until the president of Ukraine committed to announcing an investigation of President Trump's opponent. In the words of one constitutional scholar, if what we're talking about is not impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. This is precisely the misconduct that the framers created the Constitution, including impeachment, to protect against. And now I want to add, in reference to some of the comments that were made by uh, some of the president's uh, uh, counsel a few minutes ago, they talk about the subpoena power, about the failure of the House to act properly in the subpoena power, because they said uh, the House did not delegate by rule, have a resolution authorizing the committees to offer subpoena power. 
You apparently haven't read the fact that the House has generally delegated all subpoena power to the committees. That wasn't true at the time of the Watkins case. It wasn't true 15 years ago, but it is true now. Second, the House is the sole power of impeachment, and the manner of its exercise may not be challenged from outside, whether we do it, whether, we, whether we, the, the president should be convicted upon our accusation is a question for the Senate. But how we reached our accusation is a matter solely for the House. Thirdly, we talk to, they talk about executive privilege. And they point to the Nixon case that established executive privilege, that the president has a right to private, uh, uh, to candid uh, advice, and therefore executive privilege is established. But the same case says that executive privilege cannot be used to hide wrongdoing. And in fact, President Nixon was ordered in that case to turn over all the material. Thirdly, there's the doctrine of waiver. You cannot use executive privilege or any other privilege if you waive it. The moment President Trump said that John Bolton was not telling the truth when he, when he said that the president told him of the improper quid pro quo, he waived any executive privilege that might have existed. He cannot ha characterize a conversation and, that, and put it into the public domain and then claim executive privilege against it. The uh, president, by the way, never claimed executive privilege, ever. He has claimed instead absolute immunity, a ridiculous doctrine that the president that the, has absolute immunity from any questioning by the Congress or by anybody else, a claim rejected by every court that has ever considered it. And finally, the difference from this president and any other president claiming privilege of any sort is that this president told us in advance, I will defy all subpoenas. Whatever their nature, I will make sure that the Congress gets no information. In other words, I am absolute. The Congress cannot question what I do because I will defy all subpoena. I will make sure they get no information, no matter what their rights, no matter what the situation. That is the subject of Article 2 of the impeachment because that is a claim of absolute monarchical power. Thank you, Mr. Manager. The Majority Leader is recognized. I want to suggest after two more questions on each side, one more. I've been corrected. <laughs> As I frequently am. One more question on each side. We take a 15-minute break. Thank you. Mr. President. Yes, the senator from Kansas. I uh, sent a question to the desk for the counsel for the president. Thank you. Senator Roberts asks... Would you please respond to the arguments or assertions the House managers made in response to the previous questions? Directed to the counsel for the president. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, I want to respond to a couple. First, with regard to uh, the question or the issues that have been raised as it relates to witnesses, it's important to note that in, in the Clinton impeachment proceeding, the witnesses that actually gave deposition testimony were witnesses that had either been interviewed by deposition in the House proceedings, grand jury proceedings, and it was specifically, it was uh, Sid Blumenthal, Verdon Jordan, and Amon Lewinsky. The new witnesses were not being called. That's because the House, in their process, moved forward with a full investigation. That did not happen here. There was another statement that was raised um, by Mr. Chairman Schiff, Manager Schiff, regarding the Chief Justice 
can make the determination on executive privilege. And again, with no disrespect to the Chief Justice, um, the idea that the presiding officer of this proceeding could determine a waiver or a, the applicability of executive privilege would be quite a step. There's nothing historic precedent. There's no historic precedent that would justify it. But there's something else. If we get to the point of witnesses, then, for instance, if one of the witnesses to be called were by the president's lawyers was Adam Schiff in the role, basically, of Ken Starr. Ken Starr presented the report, made the uh, presentation before the House of Representatives, had about 12 hours of questioning, I believe, is what Judge Starr had. If, if Representative Schiff was called as a witness, would, in fact, then issues of speech and debate clause privilege be litigated and decided by the presiding officer, or would it go to court, or maybe they would waive it. But those would be the kind of issues that would be very, very significant. Senator Graham presented a hypothetical, which Manager Schiff said, well, that's not really the hypothetical, but hypotheticals actually are that. They're hypotheticals. But I'll, I'll give you, to use Adam, uh, Manager Schiff's words, he talked about it would be wrong if the FBI or the Department of Justice was starting a political investigation of, of, the, of someone's political opponent. And I'm thinking to myself, but isn't that exactly what happened? The Department of Justice and the FBI engaged in an investigation of the candidate for President of the United States when they started their operation called Crossfire Hurricane. He said it would be targeting a rival. Well, that's what that did. He said it would be calling for foreign assistance in that. Well, in the particular facts of Crossfire Hurricane, it has been well established now that, in fact, uh, Fusion GPS utilized the services of a far, former foreign intelligence officer, uh, Christopher Steele, to put together a dossier, and that Christopher Steele relied on his network of resources around the globe, including in Russia and other places, to put together this dossier, which then James Comey said was unverified and salacious, but yet it was the basis upon which the Department of Justice and the FBI obtained FISA warrants, and this was in 2016, against a rival campaign. So we don't have to do hypotheticals. That's precisely the situation. But to take it an additional step, this idea that a witness will be called if, the, if, the, if this body decides to go to witnesses, that a witness will be called would be a violation of fundamental fairness. Of course, if witnesses are called by the House managers through that motion, well, the President's counsel would have the opportunity to call witnesses as well, which we would. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, counsel. Senator. Oh, Senator. Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question California, to the desk. Thank, Thank you. you. The question from Senator Harris is for the House managers. President Nixon said, quote, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal, end quote. Before he was elected, President Trump said, quote, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything, 
end quote. After he was elected, President Trump said that Article 2 of the Constitution gives him, quote, the right to do whatever he wants as president, end quote. These statements suggest that each of them believed that the president is above the law, a belief reflected in the improper actions that both presidents took to affect their reelection campaigns. If the Senate fails to hold the president accountable for misconduct, how would that undermine the integrity of our system of justice? Mr. Chief Justice, uh, Senators, I think this is exactly the fear. I think if you look at the pattern in this president's uh, conduct and his words, what you see is a president who identifies the state as being himself. When the president talks about people that report his wrongdoing, for example, uh, when he describes a whistleblower as a traitor or a spy, the only way you can conceive of someone who reports wrongdoing as committing a crime against the country is if you believe that you are synonymous with the country, that any report of wrongdoing against the president, the person of the president, is a treasonous act. It is the kind of mentality that says, under Article 2, I can do whatever I want. All right, we've got to go uh, ahead and get a break in here. Fight all so uh, let's do that. Well, they're going to take a 15-minute break after the answer of that question there, which really I don't think has any bearing on President Trump whatsoever. I've got some new news for you. I'll bring to you in a moment. But first, here's your break, and then we'll have more. On the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer, home of the Rush Limbaugh Show. All right, we're in a recess right now with the Senate. It is question day. There's eight hours of questions today, eight hours of questions tomorrow. Then what? That takes us to the end of Thursday. Then what? Well, it's clear to Senate Republicans today, after a morning meeting between Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, that the question of having additional witnesses is settled. Uh, And the Senate will vote Friday to wrap up the impeachment trial of President Trump. Uh, This is from The Hill. So this is not for you who are on the left, and he says, well, he's reading stuff from Fox. Can't believe that. And for you on the right, this is not from CNN, all right? This is from The Hill which is, uh, a pre- they're pretty liberal, I'll be honest with you. Uh, but they keep their finger pretty close to the pulse of what's happening uh, up there on the Hill. There was no discussion of witnesses at a Senate GOP lunch meeting today, which was held a couple hours after McConnell and Murkowski met for about 20 to 30 minutes. That was seen as a sign by many senators that Democrats will fail to convince four Republicans to join them in calling for witnesses. Without a vote to hear from witnesses, the trial could end as soon as on Friday. We're going to get it done by Friday, hopefully, said Senator Mike Rounds of South South Dakota following the meeting. Senator Mike Braun of Indiana, emerging from the lunch, said, I think I can say the mood is good. Braun expressed confidence that McConnell will be able to keep his uh, conference unified enough to defeat a motion to consider subpoenas for additional witnesses and documents. If I had to guess, said Braun, no witnesses. Uh, We'll be in a place where I think everyone is going to have their mind made up 
and I believe that we'll be able to move to a verdict, and the uh, witness question will be clear at that point. Murkowski did not attend the lunch. Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, who's been the most outspoken advocate for additional witnesses, declined to comment as he left the lunch. That tells me he's not happy. That tells me he's losing. Uh, Romney and Senator Susan Collins, who is uh, from Maine, are both expected to back witnesses. Murkowski has been seen as a third possible vote, though she had not announced any decision. Instead of discussing the possibility of having former National Security Advisor John Bolton appear as a witness in the trial, uh, at today's meeting, lawmakers talked about voting Friday to move quickly to an up or down vote on two articles of impeachment. Rounds went on to say there was no discussion about that today. Instead, Rounds said the discussion was about how, quote, we're moving forward, unquote. A report by the New York Times that said Bolton in his forthcoming book writes that Trump had linked the withholding of aid to Ukraine to that country conducting investigations of former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden had uh, given new energy to the witness debate. Democrats have been clamoring to hear Bolton as a witness at the trial. They had their chance when he was they had a chance to call him over in the House and refused to try to call him because they thought it would end up in court. And it would still end up in court. So now it's just a matter of trying to draw this out. And I think Republicans see that and they're going to not allow witnesses to be called. Senators are asking questions to the House impeachment team and Trump's defense lawyers during today's impeachment session today and uh, tomorrow, like I said, eight hours today, eight hours tomorrow. Bill Hemmer is on right now on Fox. Let's go listen to him for just a moment. He's talking to several House members and senators about what's happening in the president's impeachment trial. At the end of the day, you, I go back to the fundamental premise that this is an unconstitutional action. The witnesses are not necessary because the way that it was brought to us was improper, runs afoul of the Constitution. That alone should serve as a basis for no witnesses. Senator, will you get Democrats to vote with you on that, or can you say that at the moment? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I think that that's no. going to be it's going to be along partisan lines. If you get... Collins, Murkowski, and Romney to break from Republicans, you're at a 50-50 tie. Uh, how would that be decided by Chief Justice Roberts? And how do you believe that would look politically in an election year? Well, I, I think that uh, first, I don't necessarily think that's going to be the scenario. And uh, secondly, at the end of the day, the American people, people that I'm talking to in North Carolina are over this. They want to move on to the Senate, going back to regular order, doing things that they want to get done for the economy, uh, for their own personal welfare. And I think at the end of the day, those will be the questions that will be asked in November. Senator, thank you for your time. I know you got another voice in your ear there. Thank you for hanging in there. We'll let you go for now. Tom Tillis from North Carolina. I introduced Andy McCarthy a moment ago. So he's saying, just like Rick Scott said last night with Brett and Lindsey Graham said last night with Martha, that they believe they can end it on Friday. And it's possible. We'll have to see how it floats out. The, the next couple of days is obviously negotiations going on behind the scenes. But I thought your, the two interviews are, are very interesting. 
especially the questions that either got misanswered or ducked. Um, you know, your question about what happens if it's 50-50, um, what happens, Bill, is that it's up to Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, to decide. He can decide to be assertive and actually cast a vote, or he can decide to, ab well, abdicate is the wrong word, but he can decide to, re to uh, restrain himself and not vote, in which case the motion would not carry because it doesn't have, it would effectively be voting against because the motion wouldn't carry, it wouldn't have 51. So that's what would happen. And in the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, just to, uh, Justice Chase did both ruled a couple of times and stayed his hand once. If so. you get that, uh, I'm told by a Republican senator earlier today that that's the last scenario they want because right. Democrats would hammer them in an election year yeah. and make it look like a Well, but, but again, this goes to the point that this is not just a legal proceeding, right? It's a political one, and the ramifications of it for political purposes are in many ways probably more profound than the legal ones. I just want to make one comment about yes. Sen Senator Duckworth. Sure. It is not the president's burden to show his innocence. And one of the things we've lost here is that there's a big gulf between a president doing something that's inappropriate or wrong versus doing something that's impeachable. And now when you listen to the Democrats, what we're, we're starting to hear is he, he's actually got to show that he's innocent, which I think is way beyond the pale of what's required. Adam here. Schiff said, don't wait for the book. And he marked March 17th. That's a reference to John Bolton, whether or not he's a witness or not in this case. We'll get to the politics in a moment. Moa Lathy and Bill McGurn will join our discussion when our coverage continues right after this. All right, shed some so let's break away from uh, Fox here while they do some business. And let me remind you again that the latest news that we have coming out of D.C., uh, this story was filed. Let me get a time for you here, see if I got a time hack on the story. I'm looking for it right now. I think this was about 20 minutes ago. It came out, yeah, that's right, 20 minutes ago says that uh, the Republicans, after they uh, walked out of their lunch meeting, uh, Republicans were uh, upbeat, saying that it looks like Friday will be the vote up or down for the president and that no witnesses will be called. I think the Republicans understand, you know, the Democrats call one, you call one. They then they can say, well, we need to call another one. And then you got to call another one. And you get into, you know, when you call people to sit down in front, you don't know. You think you know what they're going to say, but you're not absolutely certain what they'll say. They might say something that's innocuous to them, but can be misconstrued by everybody else. So it's usually something that you don't want to go at. The, the Democrats, they have nothing to lose. Their case is so flimsy and so ridiculous that they just want to continue the case any which way that they can. And that's what they're doing. And that's what they're trying to do. I think it's going to come to an end uh, on, on Friday. And uh, an interesting sidebar story is that it's been uh, now reported that when Bolton wrote his book that the White House administration challenged it, saying that some of the material that was in his book uh, should not be released. 
that it was privileged uh, material. So uh, that could hold up Bolton's book for a long time. That probably will have to go uh, to a judge to decide that. Hey, Willie wants to talk to us real quick. Let me take a question from him or a statement. Willie, how are you? Welcome to the Dave Ellswick Show. What do you think? I'm fine, Dave. Now, the Republicans could call uh, Hunter Biden, but what if he pleads the fifth? Well, that's always a possibility. I mean, look, Lindsey Graham has been really uh, straight on about that whole thing, and he said after the impeachment, he was going to, because he's the judiciary chairman in the Senate, and mm-hmm. that he was going to to bring uh, uh, them before the Senate committee to answer questions about that. So we're going to have to see where all that goes from that point. Well, if Hunter Biden pleads the fifth, I, I think that, that, that implies that he may be guilty or something. Well, I there's a lot of questions there, uh, and I, I can only say that he even admitted that he was using his father's name to get jobs over in the Ukraine and he, even here in the United States. But to be honest with you, what what kid of a famous person doesn't use their, uh, you know, their uh, parents' name to give them a, an inside run on did, something? Did you hear that he has to pay child support to this woman in Arkansas? He agreed to it. That was a determination made, I believe, on uh, yesterday or Monday. I forget which day that story broke, but we uh, we reported on that. Yes, he's agreed to play, pay child support. And he's got to something like March 3rd or 4th to, to turn over financial records. Yep. That's that's all going to happen. So we'll, we'll, we'll see if there's anything there to see. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. All right. Thanks, Dave. All right, Willie. We'll talk to you later. Appreciate your call. All right, let's go back to Fox News for a few moments. There in the uh, Senate, there's a reaction that came in during the commercial break. Chuck Schumer is talking about the, the battle for witnesses, called it an uphill battle, but they'll keep fighting. Cory Gardner, meanwhile, a Republican senator from Colorado who had been considered at the outset to be one of these who could go either way, put out a statement in the last hour, and here is how that statement reads. I do not believe we need to hear from an 18th witness... I have approached every aspect of this grave constitutional duty with respect and attention required by law and have reached this decision after carefully weighing the House managers and defense arguments and closely reviewing the evidence from the House, which included well over 100 hours of testimony from 17 witnesses. So he would be, in effect, a no. Let's get to the politics. Bill McGurn here in New York. Mo Alethe joins our coverage along with Martha McCallum, Jim Trustee, and Andy McCarthy. And Bill, why don't we begin with you? And sure. How significant could this be from Senator Gardner, do you believe? I think it is significant, but the the way this question is being framed is kind of sad. I think that one of the if you if you take Donald Trump out of the equation, you know, there's the politics of this, but there's also the constitutional substance. And I, I think the House defense team for the president made a very good case that Mrs. Pelosi cheapened the process. Remember, this process started. It didn't even start with the vote. It started with the press conference from the speaker. So I, I've always thought that as part of the Senate's job, not only to acquit uh, President Trump, I don't think the substance of the charges, I agree with Andy, arises to impeachable offense, 
but to show displeasure for the way the House has gone about this. Yes, the House can make its own rules, but the Senate could show some disapproval. And I think they have to give some disincentives for this to happen. I mean, there's going to be presidents after Donald Trump. Is this really the way we want to go after If that's the case, them? then maybe you set up some sort of timetable. Uh, if you're going to continue it past this this week to mobile. Well, that, I mean, the big question is, it's not just a question for witnesses. It's a question how long this trial is going to go. And there are probably a lot of Democrats Understood. who don't want it yeah. to go, but they don't. They want the Republicans to take the heat. Want to get you in here, Mo? What do you think about Chuck Schumer talking about an uphill battle on witnesses? Start there. Well, look, I mean, I think both sides right now are trying to play this this game and, and, and trying to count the votes. And, and it seems like it's it's up in the air. But but. Uh, the momentum might be shifting towards no witnesses. So we'll see how that plays out. Look, I think it's really interesting that every single question coming from a Republicans, or at least most of the questions, to Bill's point, are focused on the process. They really want this trial to become about the process as opposed to about the substance. But there is one substantive point that was made today that I think is worth reflecting on. And that was when Alan Dershowitz, on behalf of the defense, on behalf of the president, made the argument that Every politician believes that their election is in the national interest. And therefore, if they do something to benefit their election and say it's in the national interest, that can't be impeachable. And I think that was a remarkable substantive point to make on behalf of the defense. And, you know, using Dershowitz's logic, President Nixon's team could have said that the Watergate break in and cover up were designed to help his election and therefore were in the national interest and therefore not impeachable. And so, you know, I, don't want, I think it's important that we not lose sight of, of the substantive back and forth because, because while we're talking about whether or not these vulnerable Republican senators will feel any heat back home if they vote against witnesses, I don't think that's where the heat comes from. I think the heat comes on the substance. And if that becomes the argument made against them. Then okay. I think that's a different situation. Here was the quote from Dershowitz. You came pretty close. He said, every public official believes an election is in their public interest. Living in Washington, I can see how you would not disagree with that statement. But in terms of this argument, let's see where it goes. Back to Martha McCallum. There was one other thing that I noted here, Martha, about the whole question about the election in nine and a half months. And it, it came up, if you could address it, and Adam Schiff took the answer. He said, we had to hurry because the president tried to cheat in that election, referring to um, referring to 2020. How, I mean, that's far, been, yeah, how far that, yeah. does that argument go, do you believe? It's an argument that they have pushed really for quite some time. I mean, it really was the argument that was on the House side when they were talking about why they didn't have time to subpoena John Bolton and why they didn't have time to pursue some of these witnesses because they were so afraid that the president was going to do this again, you know, in, in their words. So then you had a 33-day gap in between bringing, uh, the, delivering the articles over to the Senate side, which raised a lot of questions about just, you know, Know, how much urgency there was on that. And, and as I think Jim Trusty said, you know, they really haven't established that beyond sort of the alarmist phrase that is happening uh, and presenting any evidence that that is uh -huh. exactly what's happening. Just got about a minute left here. And Andy, I thought this other point was important, too. The question was about an incomplete case being brought to the Senate and not um, thoroughly investigated on behalf of the House. Um, the president's attorney said it will not be just one witness. It will go on for months. That argument goes where next year? Well, it's, it's important for procedural reasons, for sure, because the Senate's institutional interest here.
All right, jump on with you right out of the bat here, and we're waiting uh, for the Senate to reconvene. It looks like that might be happening about right now. It looks like everybody's getting back to their uh, designated seat. Let's go uh, with Fox, and as soon as uh, they go to the Senate chambers, we'll join them as well. My friend, uh, that looks like this is back in session now. The Senate trial resumes. Let's go there. The senator from South Dakota. Uh, question is, questions are being asked right now. So a question, and they're written questions. So it's gone up to the Chief Justice. He'll write, read the question here in just a moment. Then Mr. Chief Justice, to, will get I have back a question for an the President's counsel, and it's co-sponsored by Senators Rounds, Wicker, Ernst, Blackburn, Tillis, Kramer, Cotton, Sullivan, and McSally, all members of the Senate Armed Services Committee. The senator from South Dakota, Oklahoma, excuse me. The Senate impeachment trial resuming on Capitol Hill. Questions being submitted by senators. The senators ask the following question of the counsel for the president. Mr. Cipollone, as members of the Senate Armed Services Committee, we listened intently when Manager Crow was defending one of Senator Schumer's amendments to the organizing resolution last week as he explained how he had firsthand experience being denied military aid when he needed it during his service. As you know, David Hale, Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, confirmed that the lethal aid provided to Ukraine last year was future aid. Which would you say had the greater military impact? President Trump's temporary pause of 48 days on future aid that will now be delivered to Ukraine, or President Obama's steadfast refusal to provide lethal aid to Ukraine for three years, more than 1,000 days, while Ukraine attempted to hold back Russia's invasion and preserve its sovereignty. Mr. Chief Justice, thank you, Senators, for that question. Uh, And I think it, it was far more serious and far more jeopardy for the Ukrainians, the decision of the Obama administration to not use the authority that was given by Congress that many of you all and many members of the House of Representatives voted for, giving the U.S. government the authority to provide lethal aid to the Ukrainians, and the Obama administration decided not to provide that aid. And multiple witnesses who were called in the House by the House Democrats testified that the United States policy towards Ukraine got stronger under the Trump administration, in part largely because of that lethal aid. Ambassador Yovanovitch, uh, Ambassador Volker, uh, others also testified that U.S. policy in providing that aid was greater support for Ukraine than was provided in the Obama administration, particularly the provision of Javelin anti-tank missiles, which they explained were lethal and would kill Russian tanks and change the calculus for aggression for the Russians in the Donbass region in the eastern portion of Ukraine, where that conflict is still ongoing. In terms of the pause, the temporary pause on aid here, the testimony in the record 
Put aside what the House managers have said about their speculation, and they know what it's like to be denied aid. The testimony in the record is that this temporary pause was not significant. Ambassador, Bols Ambassador Volker testified that the brief pause on releasing the aid was quote-unquote not significant. And Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs David Hale explained that, quote, this was future assistance, not to keep the Army going now. So in other words, this isn't money that had to flow every month in order to fund current purchases or something like that. It was money, it's five-year money. Once it's obligated, it's there for five years. And it usually takes quite a bit of time to spend all of it. So the idea somehow that during the couple of months in July, August, and up till September 11th, 55 to 48 days, depending on how you count it, that this was somehow denying critical assistance to the Ukrainians on the front lines right then. It's simply not true. And now the House managers have tried to pivot away from that because they know it's not true and to say, no, it was the signal to the Russians. It was the signal of lack of support that the Russians would pick up on. But here again, it's critical. Even the Ukrainians didn't know that the aid had been paused. And part of the reason was it, they never brought it up in any conversations with representatives of the U.S. government. And as Ambassador Volker testified, representatives of the U.S. government didn't bring it up to them because they didn't want anyone to know. They didn't want to put out any signal that might be perceived by the Russians or by the Ukrainians as any sign of lack of support. It was kept internal to the U.S. government. They've pointed to the, some emails that someone at the Department of Defense or Department of State, Laura Cooper, received from unnamed embassy staffers suggesting that there was a question about the aid. But her testimony was she couldn't even remember what the question really was, and she didn't want to speculate. There's not evidence that any decision makers in the Ukraine government knew about the pause. And just the other day, another article came out. I believe it was from, the at the time, the Foreign Minister Daniluk, explaining that when the political article was published on August 28th, there was panic in Kiev because it was the first time they realized there was any pause on the aid. So that was not something that was providing any signal either to the Ukrainians or the Russians because it wasn't known. It was two weeks later after it became public that the aid was released. The testimony in the record is that the pause was not significant. It was future money, not for current purchases. And it was released before the end of the fiscal year. They point out that some of it wasn't out the door by the end of the fiscal year. That happens every year. There's some percentage that doesn't make it out the door by the end of the year. And again, it's five-year money. It's not like it's all going to be spent in the next 30, 60, 90 days anyway. So the fact that there was a, a little fix, Congress passed a fix to allow that $35 million to be spent. Something similar happens for some amount almost every year, and it was not affecting current purchases. It wasn't jeopardizing anything at the front lines. There's no evidence about that in the record. The evidence is to the contrary. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Chief Justice. Senator from Maine. Mr. Chief Justice, I have a question for both sets of counsel, which I'm sending to the desk.
The question from Senator King is for uh, both counsel to the President and the House managers. President Trump's former Chief of Staff, General John Kelly, has reportedly said, quote, I believe John Bolton, end quote, and suggests Bolton should testify, saying, quote, if there are people that could contribute to this, either innocence or guilt, I think they should be heard, end quote. Do you agree with General Kelly that they should be heard? I think, uh, counsel for the president, it's your turn to go first. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate. This was a, a bit of a topic that I discussed yesterday, and that was the um, information that came out in the New York Times uh, piece about what is purportedly in a book by Ambassador Bolton. Now, as I've said, the idea that a manuscript is not in the book, there's not a quote from the manuscript in the book, this is a perception of what the statement might be. Um, there have been very forceful statements, not just from the President, but from the Attorney General. Uh, the Department of Justice stated that while the Department of Justice has not reviewed Mr. Bolton's manuscript, the New York Times account of this conversation grossly mischaracterizes what Attorney General Barr and Mr. Bolton discussed. There was no discussion of, and this again, personal favors or undue influence on investigations, nor did Attorney General Barr state that the President's conversations with foreign leaders were improper. So the, again, that goes to just some of the allegations that were, that, that were in the article. Um, the Vice President said the same thing. He said, in every conversation with the President and Vice President in preparation for our trip to Poland, the President consistently expresses frustration that the United States was bearing the lion's share of responsibility. There's also a, a, um, an interview that Ambassador Bolton had given, in, I think in August, um, about the conversation where he said it was a perfectly appropriate conversation. I think that information's um, publicly available now. So, again, to, to move that into a, a, a change in proceeding, so to speak, I, I think is, is not correct. The evidence that has already been presented, a accusation that if you get into witnesses, I'll do this very briefly, if we get down the road on the witness issues, let's be clear. It, will, it should not be. I certainly can't dictate to this body. It should certainly not be, though, that the House managers get John Bolton and the President's lawyers get no witnesses. We would expect if they're going to get witnesses, we will get witnesses, and those witnesses uh, would then... But all of that, just to be clear, changes the nature and scope of the proceedings. They didn't ask for it before. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Senator, um, Justice, what's the significance of the President's former Chief of Staff saying that he believes John Bolton uh, and implicitly does not believe the President? Uh, that Bolton should testify. Um, it's really, at the end of the day, not whether I believe John Bolton or whether General Kelly believes John Bolton, but whether you believe John Bolton, uh, whether you'll have an opportunity to hear directly from John Bolton, whether you have the opportunity to evaluate his credibility for yourself. Now, there are a few arguments made against this. Uh, some are rather extraordinary. It would be unprecedented, the suggestion, I think, is to have witnesses in a trial. 
What, a, what an extraordinary idea. But as, as my colleagues have said, it would be extraordinary not to. Uh, this will be the first impeachment trial in history that involves no witnesses if you decide you don't want to hear from any, that you simply want to rely on what was investigated in the House. Uh, that would be unprecedented. Yes, we should be able to call witnesses, and yes, so should the president, relevant witnesses. Now, the president says that uh, you can't believe John Bolton, and Mick Mulvaney says you can't believe John Bolton. Well, let the president call Mick Mulvaney, another relevant witness with firsthand information. If he's willing to say publicly, not under oath, that Bolton is wrong, let him come and say that under oath. Yes, we're not saying that just one side gets to call witnesses. Both sides get to call relevant witnesses. Now, they also make the argument implicitly, well, you're just going to take, this is going to take long. The senator's got to warn you, if you were on a real trial, it's going to require witnesses, and that's going to take time. And I think the, the, the underlying threat, and I don't mean this in a harsh way, but is we're going to make this really time-consuming. The deposition took place very quickly in the House. We have a perfectly good Chief Justice behind me that can rule on evidentiary issues. What's more, the President has waived and waived and waived any claim about national security here. By talking about himself, by declassifying the call record, we're not interested in asking John Bolton about Venezuela or other places or other countries, just Ukraine. And if there's any question about it, the Chief Justice can resolve these are relevant questions to the matter at hand. What you cannot do is use privilege to hide wrongdoing of an impeachable kind and character. Thank you, Mr. Manager. The Senator from Utah. I send a question to the desk on behalf of myself and Senators Cruz and Hawley. The question is directed to counsel for the president. Is it true that Sean Misko, Abigail Grace, and the alleged whistleblower were employed by or detailed to the National Security Council during the same time period between January 20, 2017 and the present? Do you have reason to believe that they knew each other? Do you have any reason to believe that the alleged whistleblower and Misko coordinated to fulfill their reported commitment to, quote, do everything we can to take down, take out the president, end quote. Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, um, the only knowledge that um, we have, that I have of this, comes from public reports. Uh, I gather that there is a news report um, in some uh, publication that suggests a name for the whistleblower, suggests where he worked, that he worked at that time um, uh, while detailed the NSC staff for then-Vice President Biden, and that there were others who worked there. Uh, I, we have no knowledge of that other than what's in those public reports, and I don't want to get into speculating about that. It is something that, to uh, an unknown extent, may have been addressed in the testimony of the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community before 
um, Chairman Schiff's committees, but that testimony, uh, contacts with the whistleblower, contacts between members of Manager Schiff's staff and the whistleblower uh, are shrouded in secrecy to this day. Uh, we don't know what the testimony of the ICIG was. It remains secret. It has not been forwarded. We don't know what Manager Schiff's staff's contact with the whistleblower have been and what connections there are there. It's something that would seem to be relevant since the whistleblower started this entire inquiry. Uh, but I can't make any representations that we have particular knowledge of the facts suggested in the question. We know that there was a, a public report suggesting connections and uh, prior working relationships between certain people. Not something that I can comment on other than to say that there's a report there. We don't know what the ICIG discussed. We don't know what the ICIG was told by the whistleblower. Other public reports about inaccuracies in the whistleblower's report to the ICIG. We don't know the testimony on that. We don't know the situation of the contacts, coordination, advice provided by Manager Schiff's staff to the whistleblower. That all remains unknown. Uh, but something that obviously, to get to the bottom of motivations, bias, how this was all, uh, this inquiry was all created, could potentially be relevant. Thank you. Thank you, Council. The Senator from New Mexico. Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question to the desk for the President's Council. When did the President's Council first learn that the Bolton manuscript had been submitted to the White House for review, and has the President's Council or anyone else in the White House attempted in any way to prohibit, block, disapprove, or discourage John Bolton or his publisher from publishing his book? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, at some point, I don't, I, I, I don't know off the top of my head the exact date. Um, the manuscript had been submitted to the NSC for review. It is with career NSC staff for review. The White House Counsel's Office was notified that it was there. Um, the NSC has released a statement explaining that it has not been reviewed by anyone outside NSC staff. In terms of the second part of the question, um, has there been any attempt to prevent its publication or to block its publication? I think that there was some misinformation put out into the public realm earlier today, and I can read for you a relatively short letter that was sent from NSC staff to uh, Charles Cooper, who is the attorney for Mr. Bolton, on January 23rd, which was last week. Uh, which says, Dear Mr. Cooper, thank you for speaking yesterday by telephone. As we discussed, the National Security Council Access Management Directorate has been provided the manuscript submitted by your client, former assistant to President John Bolton, for pre-publication review. Based on our preliminary review, the manuscript appears to contain significant amounts of classified information. 
It also appears that some of this classified information is at the top secret level, which is defined by Executive Order 13526 as information that, quote, reasonably could be expected to cause exceptionally grave harm to the national security of the United States if disclosed without authorization. Under federal law and the non-disclosure agreements your client signed as a condition for gaining access to classified information, the manuscript may not be published or otherwise disclosed without the deletion of this classified information. The manuscript remains under review in order for us to do our best to assist your client by identifying the classified information within the manuscript, while at the same time ensuring the publication does not harm the national security of the United States. We will do our best to work with you to ensure your client's ability to tell his story in a manner that protects U.S. national security. We will be in touch with you shortly with additional, more detailed guidance regarding next steps that should enable you to revise the manuscript and move forward as expeditiously as possible. Sincerely, and then the signature of the career official. So it is with the NSC doing their pre-publication review. Through his lawyer, Ambassador Bolton was notified that the manuscript he submitted contains a significant amount of classified information, including at the top secret level, so that in its current form, it can't be published, but that they will be working with him as expeditiously as possible to provide guidance so it can be revised and so that he can tell his story. And that was the letter from the NSC that went out. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Chief Justice. Oh, the senator from Iowa. <laughs> Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question to the desk on behalf of myself and Senators Burr, McSally, Danes, Moran, Young, and Sass. The Senator's question is directed to counsel for the President. Is it true the Trump administration approved supplying Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukraine? Is it also true this decision came on the heels of a nearly three-year debate in Washington over whether the United States should provide lethal defense weapons to counter further Russian aggression in Europe? By comparison, did President Obama refuse to send weapons or other lethal military gear to Ukraine? Was this decision against the advice of his defense secretary and other key military leaders in his administration? Mr. Chief Justice, uh, thank you, Senators, for the question. Uh, yes, the Trump administration made the decision to provide Javelin anti-tank missiles. and there were All right, back with you. We move away from uh, the Senate well, where the questions are being asked during uh, President Trump's impeachment trial, and move to talking live with uh, Congressman uh, Hill, who uh, is up in D.C., Today, I don't know if you saw it or not, but on television, they carried it live, and the president signed the uh, USMCA, the uh, updating of uh, 
you know, our trade agreement with Mexico and Canada, it was a huge, huge deal. I mean, major deal. And it means, uh, I think the president said about an extra 1.2% growth in our GDP. And when you're talking trillions of dollars, you're talking a lot of money. And so let's talk to the congressman about that. Farmers got to be really happy about this because uh, the farm part of the uh, USMCA is very, very uh, you're going to help farmers here in the United States. Hey, Dave, thanks for having me. Yeah, this was a big day today and a big week. Um, obviously, Mexico was there with the president to see it signed. Yep. And uh, on Monday, Canada began the ratification process this week. So hopefully here in just a few days, we will have a brand new updated trade arrangement between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico for the first time in 24 years. And I'd say, yeah, American agriculture is a winner. Uh, Dairy and wheat and chicken and eggs and turkey, all those products are now uh, open in Canada, something that was not a part of the original NAFTA. And I really think President Trump's main issue was trying to get more manufacturing in the three countries made here. And so in the auto market, he moved up the American component of the three countries substantially. And so I think you'll see more auto part companies uh, locate on this side of the border. I think that's good. And down in Mexico, they have real changes on uh, wages uh, for Mexican workers who are working along the uh, Mexican border. And that also will help Americans by not encouraging that uh, movement south because they'll be paying a more competitive wage with the United States. Yeah, and that's that's really, really good news here in our country. By the way, did you happen to hear one of the people that were there today at the signing of this? It was uh, James Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa's son, because he's still head of uh, – uh, you know, the union. And so mm-hmm. he w- he was there for the signing of this thing, and he was all smiles today. Well, he's, he's got name brand awareness on streaming now. So, uh, <laughs> That's yeah, the truth. you know, I have to say, I mean, as a conservative free trader, I have to tell you that uh, this deal is a better deal than NAFTA with lots of improvements, but it was a compromise. And so you have Free traders standing in the Rose Garden. You have uh, labor representatives, and that just shows you how hard the president worked to get a deal that Mexico, Canada, and the United States could support. And I think, Dave, honestly, it's the um, biggest bipartisan vote in the House that I can think of in any trade issue in, in decades, not years, but decades. You know, what drove me nuts is that uh, Pelosi got up in front of the microphone today and it was like, look what we've done for the American people. Yeah, I can't. can't, Yeah, it's unbelievable. She held it up for a year. She didn't make a major change. She did have some tweaks. But look, those core um, manufacturing provisions, those core labor provisions were provisions that President Trump wanted and laid out at the very beginning of the process through his ambassador, Robert Lighthouser. So, you know, look, uh, success has a thousand fathers. 
And let's uh, <laughs> accept that and move on because this is great for American workers. It's great for folks in Arkansas, and it's good for our, our GDP in the next decades to come. Well, and, and look, it reasserts that President Trump can negotiate trade deals successfully, point one. Point two, it reasserts a, a, a position that he's taken that's right, which is nobody can outcompete Americans if we have a level playing field. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll see uh, European and Asian companies uh, come to Mexico, Canada, the United States to take advantage of that. Yeah, I, I think that you're right. Be- even Chinese companies, i got to believe, when you look at some of the shoddy workmanship that comes out of China. Let's move over to something that really is just kind of boggled me uh, yesterday, and that's when the president unveiled this uh, Middle East peace plan. Uh, you know, I don't know if the Palestinians are going to take advantage of it. I would hope that they will because it seems to me it's a it's a pretty good deal for them to actually find a place amongst the world's governments. What do you think? Well, there's uh, an old expression that the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> and uh, that's not meant to be sarcastic. It just means that it's true. there is never an ability for Israel and for other parties who care to have a reliable party to negotiate with. I mean, President Bush worked his tail off on it. President Clinton worked his tail off on it. President Obama made it worse. His policy was very poor with Israel and with the Palestinians, so there was no nothing accomplished during the Obama days except going backwards. Mm-hmm. But Trump wanted to tee up what he calls the opportunity of a lifetime, not the deal of a lifetime, but the opportunity of a lifetime where with playing uh, much more, no appeasement. In the past, people have tried to buy Palestinian loyalty, buy Palestinian negotiations. And President Trump said, look, if you want a two-state solution, I support a two-state solution. That's been a major international goal. But you're not going to buy it. These parties, Fatah, which is run by Abbas in the West Bank, and Hamas, which is really just, just... run by, it's a terror organization. Yep. I mean, they don't even get along with the Palestinians, which is why the Israelis have made no progress in well over 10 years. Um, if you want a state, you are invited to form a state. And what we ask you to do is live peaceably, peaceably with your neighbors. The question is, can Fatah create a political coalition to do that? Because Hamas, of course, is sworn to never do that. But I appreciated the president uh, making new proposals here, uh, including capital for the Palestinian state in East Jerusalem, uh, very careful, balanced access to all the holy sites in Jerusalem, uh, four years, no West Bank settlement expansion. So the peace opportunity, the two-state opportunity is on the table for the Palestinians to grab. And it's not a it's not an immediate thing. They can grab it in the years to come. Yeah, I you know, I agree. And here's my other thing that I that I think we need to remember. You know, everybody downplayed that this president could do the USMCA. Everybody downplayed that he could get something out of China, downplayed that he could get Japan on board and a lot of these other trade deals. I'm not gonna put anything out of this guy's reach. I mean He's 
he's not afraid to do the ask. You know, you got to ask, you got to present, and then hope something, um, somebody will stick with it and it will move forward. Well, he's honoring his commitments to our ally, Israel. We have our embassy in Jerusalem now. Uh, we are not allowing uh, payments to go to the Palestinians. We're saying, look, if you want a two-state solution, step up, form a government, get unity, and let's let's negotiate. Yeah. Uh, that really hasn't been done and hasn't had the opportunity to be done. So there's new ideas here uh, that I think are um, – a real change in the thought process. I will say there were Gulf Arab Gulf states present at that announcement yesterday, publicly. So let's uh, hope for the hope for the best. But it's not an immediate thing. But again, President Trump, I think, has demonstrated he's kept another campaign promise, which is that he would move the American embassy to Jerusalem and he would put forward a Palestinian-Israel two-state solution and do it in a new and creative and different way. And I would argue that he's done that. So before we go to our break, let me ask this question. Yesterday, the president had a big one of his big rallies, this one in South New Jersey. 175 people asked for, 175,000 people asked for tickets for only a 7,000 seat venue. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. This is New Jersey. Now, I understand Southern New Jersey's more conservatives in northern New Jersey, but the president announced that he's going to come back to the Meadowlands, and that's northern New Jersey, and do another one. Amazing. I mean, all I can say is amazing. I uh, have watched this from the very beginning as President Trump entered the political arena with uh, sheer uh, amazement as somebody who's worked in presidential politics before, watched it at hand, and it is an amazing, amazing phenomenon to see candidate Trump and who stands in line in freezing weather for 48 hours to get a ticket. Yeah. Or not get a ticket. Stand in line anyway. Yeah, know that you're not going to get a ticket, in fact. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. And they had the big screens out for them, and the people hung around, and the, the people who had the restaurants that usually are shuttered right now opened up, and they made some good money yesterday. Wintertime on the boardwalk. Absolutely. Doesn't happen in South Jersey much. No, doesn't. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. Congressman French Hill is with us from District 2. We're going to preview the State of the Union. We'll be carrying that live for you next Tuesday right here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, home of Rush Limbaugh. All right, back. We only have about, uh, well, I'm looking at it, about uh, eight minutes with the congressman right now. Congressman, have you heard the story out that it looks like it might be a bipartisan vote to find the president not guilty? It looks like there's three Democrats now that are moving that way to vote with Republicans for acquittal. Does that surprise you? You know, it doesn't really surprised me. We had a bipartisan vote here in opposition of impeachment. I noticed on the news cycle that no one seems to ever mention that, but we did have uh, Democrats uh, vote with the Republicans opposed to the articles on the House floor. Not many, uh, two plus one abstention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one can change parties. Right. Andrew switch parties. But it doesn't surprise me because I don't believe that uh The House managers, as I've said for months now, have 
proven a case of behavior that deserves removal from office, which is the question before the Senate. And I've been over twice today sitting in the Senate chamber listening uh, in between meetings to the Q&A. There was no distinguished pattern in the questions the senators were asking today. Um, But this is a very important phase where we are, Dave. I think uh, I was speaking with Governor Hutchison and he was telling me a little bit about his experience as a House manager during the Clinton impeachment. And he said that the questions were where the real the Senate body comes together in terms of uh, analyzing where they're going to be on this important vote, whether or not to accept witnesses and whether or not to uh, move for a dismissal of the articles. You know, I, I have to tell you, it still amazes me that there are some Republicans that will go against their caucus and think that they want to have witnesses. I don't I just don't understand it. Can you walk us through what's going on maybe politically, maybe you have a little bit more insight than than I do. I mean, you're there in DC while where it's all happening. Well, I'm also trying to do my job over on the other side I got of the you. Capitol, and I don't profess to be a constitutional lawyer, but I will say this. The house process was unfair. I think that can be documented. It was not comparable to the Watergate or Clinton process. They rushed it because they said they had to rush it because President uh, Trump was a threat. And they did not build out a case with thorough work. And so there are many holes and uncompleted parts of their case. And therefore, they're relying on secondhand information and innuendo, et cetera. So in the Clinton case, there was a special independent counsel, Ken Starr, that went on for months. So all these witnesses were deposed and developed uh, in the Clinton case under Ken Starr's independent counselship. When the Senate then commenced, commenced a trial for President Clinton, there were no new names that came up. There were three witnesses. They'd all been deposed during the independent counsel process. They simply came back and granted depositions in the Senate. So they Mm -hmm. weren't new names. They weren't new surprises. People didn't know what they, people knew what their positions were. And so at the fundamental part here, I think to ask for witnesses is to say the House did a terrible job in managing the investigation and the, um, grand jury portion of this activity and that's because they chose to do it the way they did well we've got a couple of more moments we're going to carry the uh, state of the union message live on tuesday night right here on 1011 fm the answer your thoughts about what the president uh will be talking about i mean he's got a he's got a roaring economy he's got a lot of great things that are happening he's he's kept campaign promises He's reached out to the Democrats at times, and they've kind of slapped his hand away, of course, but uh, he has reached out, and he may be acquitted before the uh, State of the Union. So how important is it, and what are some of the things that you think he'll tackle? I think this is an important speech for him. Uh, It's the end of his third year as he goes into his fourth year in office as president, obviously into a re-election. And I think he will spend a significant amount of time, Dave, talking about 
what he campaigned on in 2016 and what he's gotten done and what unfinished work remains for a second term and what he would initiate if the American people gave him a second term. What would he tackle? I hope he'll tack, tackle mandatory spending programs and focus on reforming all the long-term safety net programs so that we can have them there for ourselves and our kids. And at this rate, they won't be. I think that's an important topic. I think he ought to reform government even more than he has so far. So there's a big agenda ahead for him, but I think he'll focus on the economy. I think he'll focus on rebuilding the military. I think he'll refocus on resetting trade to advantage American farmers, producers. I think he'll talk about the workforce, uh, that we've never had more people working in America than now. So I believe he has a great opportunity to talk about what he's gotten done in the three years with Congress and what he would hope to do if he were granted a reelection by the American people. Yeah, Congressman, one of the things that the president had talked about and really hasn't been able to get it, it's been a non-starter, so to speak, is reaching out to the Democrats and talking about building the infrastructure of America. Do you think he'll talk about that for his second term? I do. I know Nancy Pelosi proposes an infrastructure plan this year. I know the committees are working on it. And as you and I have talked, we have a highway bill we need to get to done this year. Yep. I'm sure he's disappointed by that. He's gotten some regulatory reforms done. He's gotten about $50 billion in public-private partnerships authorized. He's done some big projects, but it's really not what he anticipated. So I'd be very interested in what he would set as a goal there. There's been a lot of rhetoric on that topic, both from President Trump and from the Democratic leadership in the House. And let's see what's in the world of doable, I think, is the right right question on infrastructure. Last question for you. The president, let's say he's acquitted on Friday because it looks like the momentum is moving towards the Republicans not calling witnesses and then the vote for acquittal coming up on uh, Friday. Uh, what's your thoughts? Where? What do the Democrats do the rest of this year as we move towards the election? And Bernie Sanders now seems to be getting wind in his sail, pushing him forward. Right now, polls are showing him up in Iowa, up in New Hampshire, up in California. I don't think anyone in the Democratic Party really thought that that was going to happen. Is is this a nightmare for them now? Well, I think it could be. I've seen them do nothing but messaging bills, either trying to restrain the president's ability to conduct foreign policy or uh, block his ability to increase border security on the southwest border uh, or reverse his regulatory and, and tax improvements. I think you'll see more of that. Um, but as you say, this over the next uh, month and f I say five weeks, mm -hmm. uh, because California has moved their primary up. So I think we're going to have some indication on uh, the direction of the Democratic Party and the campaign here before, you know, too long early in March after Super Tuesday. And um, that could give us opportunities in the House uh, to uh, have some very strong contrasting debates about what the uh, uh, socialism, far-left policies of the Democratic nominees are proposing, if in fact they choose to go that direction. Yeah, I, everybody should remember that if uh, you're a Democrat and you win Iowa and you win New Hampshire, those two primaries, you win uh, to be flag bearer for your party. 
that that's always happened. It will be interesting to see if history continues uh, to follow what it's done in the past. All right. We got to let you go there, Congressman. It's been great. Thanks, next, great to be with next you. Next time we talk, it'll be 7.06 in the morning next Wednesday. All right. So Dave Ellswick's show. We have standing in the in the shadows and waiting to come on more guests here on Dave Ellswick's show. So stick around. Don't forget, 5 o'clock, we'll give you a little bit more of the question and answers going on in the Senate on the Dave Ellswick show. 101.1 FM, the answer home. Of Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Jay Sekulow, and of course, Dave Ellsworth. back to the Senate if they're back in session again. Questions going on right now. Kind of interesting listening to it. Listen to the Chief Justice read the question and try to read it with a very bland voice and then having uh, the the House managers or the President's defense team answer Answer them. them. And it's it's a little bit disconcerting when you're listening to it on the radio because there's there's areas of silence and silence don't come across real well on radio I'm just letting you know so uh, we'll have about a half hour we're going to replay that interview that we did last hour uh with congressman french hill because a lot of good information in that about the usmca and the trump plan for the middle east and don't don't i'm just telling you don't count the president out on the middle east everybody every time somebody counts him out for being able to do something, he gets it done. Comes on through. That's right. And then uh, we got the State of the Union uh, talking about what the president next week will talk about for the State of the Union. But right now, let's talk about cars. The phone line's open to you. 823-0965. You got a question about your car. You got a problem with it? You got a problem with your wife's car, your son's car, your daughter's car, your car, whatever. 8230965 is the number to call and ask these guys Joe and Duck uh you know your question you got two guys that got years and years and years and years of automobile experience yeah we're a bunch of old guys here <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm just, yeah I'm fixing to have a birthday here next month so I, you your birthday in February the 11th is it really yep. you're close to me I'm 15th my sisters is the second my mother's i'm the 11th my mother's is the 15th and i got two i got uh, a sister that's hers is the 20th and i got my granddaughter's 26th okay so i'm the 15th my grandson eli is the 17th my grandson max is the 19th and my daughter's is the 21st so you got about as many as i got yeah we run february is a pretty good just have one good great month. big party for everybody <laughs> i gotta find my son is supposed to be coming over and bringing max my grandson from oklahoma 
And if that happens, then it'd be me and Max and Eli, and I'm going to go to All Aboard and buy lunch or dinner for all of us, and then we'll go back to the house. And, of course, you've got to have cake and ice cream and all that kind of festivities, yep. so I'm looking forward to it. That'd be a good time. Yeah. Got to take care of See if I can make something in my uh, quick pot. I got a quick pot. All right. So I'll see if I can make something. You're supposed to be able to make cakes in it. Really? Yeah. Going to have to yeah. give all a try out for all of it. I go. I'm going to get a a cookbook from Amazon that's got like seventy thousand recipe. Not that many. It's got a, a bunch of recipes. So I'll give it a try. By the way, you've got a question eight two three zero nine six five. So Dave, you know we've been talking about electric cars and stuff like that. I have thrown a few feelers out for someone who has a Tesla. Yeah, the old Tesla, yeah. And would like to come on the radio and talk to us about it. You so, find somebody? Not yet, I hadn't, but I've got some feelers out there. and It's doing well on the stock market. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tesla announced uh, yesterday that they have orders for 500,000 electric really? cars. Yes, 500,000. Thousand electric cars. That's incredible. It's half million. That's but, uh, that's a lot. But it, I got, it is a bunch. That uh, you know. That, but a lot of that's due to the fact that the price of them cars have come down too. Dave. Way down. Yes. How much are they running? Huh? You know. I, I think they're they're pretty much in line with uh with a uh, with the uh, gas burner now. Yeah. You know. I think you can get to the the economy the lowest price when they got around fifty k something. Like really? That. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. like a SUV or yeah. something. Yeah. All right. We got a call from Jim. Jim is in Jonesboro and joins us here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Hey, Jim, how are you? What's happening, brother? I'm getting around. I'm out of town today. You're running around. Uh, yeah, got to put that gas in the ground there, Dave. <laughs> okay. Uh, you guys, man, I got a 2016 Chrysler 200, and my front end well i don't know exactly where the vibration is coming from but that thing is about to beat me to death from 50 to 70 miles an hour and and i've had a couple of people tell me the tires are cupping i've got 70,000 k miles on three of the tires that's on it one of the tires is on the back it's relatively new because i blew it out uh but i is there somewhere I can get it get it put on a dyno or bring it to somebody that can tell me why this thing is? I mean, it's about to beat me to death. It'll stir a five gallon bucket of paint in ten miles. <laughs> I like that analogy. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. But I, I promise you that if if it's a, a resonant vibration at that speed, fifty to seventy, it, it's going to be a tire issue, or yeah. uh, you know, it's either got a separating tire or. A bent wheel. These roads we have, I see them all the time. Aluminum wheels get bent, and uh, seventy thousand miles on that tire. How old are those old tires? Five years old, six years old. Well, they, three of three of them come on the car. All right. And, and now I had a fender bender in old, that yeah. car. Yeah. yeah, I had a fender bender in that car back in uh, twenty seventeen when it was a little over, not quite a year old. Yeah. And it tore it tore up the right front uh wheel uh rim yeah just tore to pieces and but uh the people that put it back together from the reg uh had about uh, eight thousand dollars worth of damage to it motor cradle and all of that they had to replace on it and i'm just wondering am i getting any feedback from that 
accident that I had in there, you know, it was sideswipe caused $8,000 of damage to my car. Yeah, well, you might have. Uh, there could be some there. It could have something bent on the suspension. It could be something that was lightly damaged and it's got worse over, you know, since it was repaired. Uh, but, you know, vibrations and noises and stuff like that, we really need to see the car. But but uh, right. I, I'm positive if you bring it to to one of the bumper-to-bumper certified service centers like me, I do suspension work and do alignments, and Duck does too, and right. there's several other guys around town that do. Uh, I'm sure you're, we could get you lined out. So You're over there on Crystal Hill, right? Yes, sir. Okay, yeah, I, I live in Hot Springs, and I drive back and forth. I'm trying to move to Jonesboro, or to, to Jacksonville, get yeah. a little closer to work. And one, one other little question. I've got a 2017 Jeep Cherokee, and it's got the same motor, same transmission, same everything as my 200's got, and this thing gets sucked. Lousy gas mileage. I mean, yeah. I, I come up here to Hot Springs, we got our Jonesboro from Hot Springs today, and it went backwards five miles per gallon. <laughs> well, I can tell you why, because that Jeep has got a different gear ratio in yep. it than what your 300 does. Yep. Okay. And, and and a difference in the size of the tires on it, too. So right. you, there, you, you can have the same motor in there, but I promise you, without the exact same running gear, you're going to have a big difference. Yeah, and it's probably got a different ratio on the transmission, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, is there any way that it can be checked to see? Because I don't run it much over 72, 73 miles an hour. And, I mean, I literally lost five miles to the gallon on gas. I started out with 29.7 miles, and it went to 24 before I got to Jonesboro. It's just drinking the entire tank of gas. I would be looking. I mean, you can go drive that and look at the fuel trims on it, see if it's burning the best it can burn. But but I would be looking on that Jeep. If you're talking about that 2017 Jeep, I would be looking at the thermostat. Yep, because it sounds like it ain't getting up hot enough. And that will close okay. That'll like that'll like for instance, if that thermostat sticks open a little bit and it doesn't let the engine come, it it if the thermostat sticks open a little bit and it doesn't let it uh, warm completely up, it won't change loop status and it's going to run off the, uh, uh, the instead of run off the O2s, run off the coolant temp. It's going to run too rich and you'll. Your fuel economy going to tank, right, Duck? Quickly. Yeah. It's definitely got loud. It's been like that ever since I've had it. Uh, I bought it brand new in 2017, and I've never gotten more than about 16 miles per gallon on the highway. Well, if you'll come by, I'll be happy to check yeah. it for you. Or, or you know, I know okay. you, there's a couple places. If you live in Hot Springs, you can go by Duck's yeah, place Yeah, go by Duck's yeah. down in, in Benton. Yeah. He'll take care of you. Yeah, Just, we can check it for you, okay. see what's going on. Yeah, give you some idea. Yeah. Well, I would appreciate it. I appreciate you guys, man. Yeah, I, I really, I've been looking forward for your show. I had, I've missed it the last couple of weeks. I've been wanting to talk to y'all about this because this is just aggravating the snot out of me. Okay, now rem- remember, Jim, starting next week, I'm moving yeah, to, man, I'm going to mornings, brother. Yeah, uh, tell me, are you still going to be rebroadcasting on Red Eye? Because, you know, that's where I'm listening to you now on the iHeartRadio app. Yes. you still be rebroadcasting? Because I work nights, brother. I, I'm, I, I can't stand daylight. <laughs> I, I, I have to get... I have to get my garlic and my cross. Okay, well, I'm, I'm just just remember life. this: that I'm always. If you go to one hundred one point one FM, uh, theanswer.com, 
All of my shows are there, or go to Facebook.com, Dave Ellswick Show. All of my shows are there. You can always go back and listen to them. All right, brother. All right. Hey, we'll talk I'm to you glad, later I'm now. Glad you're, I'm glad you're feeling better, too, man. Glad you got that pig line out. Yeah, the doctor told me yesterday two weeks, and she'll, she's going to give me a clean bill of health, and that's a good thing because I'm going Out. to Washington, D.C. at the end of February. Out. Outstanding. Looking forward to hearing the radio show. All right. We'll Thank talk you. to you later, Jim. Thanks for your call here on the Dave Ellswick Show. That's as easy as it works, man. Call in, you want to talk about something, and then he's got a couple cars, he's got some questions about it. Uh, well, I have concerns about his tires. If they were on there from 2016 and this is 2020, that and puts it's got 70,000 miles on it. Five years old, those tires well, are. Well, he probably, says they're getting cupped. I can tell yeah, you that has shaked your teeth out of your head. Is it an alignment issue or, yep. or a suspension? Something's more out on the suspension or something. Yeah. yeah, that's definitely. Well, you remember when I used to have problems oh, yeah. with my, my mm-hmm. uh, little minivan that I had, and it. It had some things that were wrong with it and cupped the tires, and uh, it was running fine, and then I rotated the tires, yeah. and suddenly it wasn't running so well. <laughs> suddenly it got shaky, didn't it? It sure did. Boy, it was just, I thought something had gone wrong with the whole suspension of the car. Well, you can get a tire that's starting to fail, and, and, and it'll get a, a partial separation, and it'll throw it bad out of balance, especially at higher speeds, because... You have to remember, centrifugal force makes that tire grow. Mm-hmm. If if it was a certain height and width sitting there, without it spinning at 70 mile an hour, it's narrower and taller. Just like if you watched a drag car, Dave. Them, oh, them, yeah, those slicks, they man. Have, they, yeah, they go from 20 inches wide to 10 inches wide. And, and, and just taking off the line, if you look at one of them top fuelers, yeah, you'll see that tire grow a foot. Becomes in elliptical instead yeah, of round. Yeah. Yeah, correct. And so your passenger car tire has this, it, the, the speed, the centrifugal force of that has the same effects on it. That tire will get taller and narrower. And so if you have one that uh, belts kind of iffy in it, uh, one side will get taller than the other, and then it becomes an egg. What does an egg do when you roll it? It goes whoop, diddy, whoop, diddy, whoop. Yeah. Then your It'll car vibrates your really bad. Yes. All right. Take a break. 20 minutes after 4, you got a question. Eight two three. Oh nine six five local number to talk to Duck and to talk to Joe right here on uh, their version the Car and Truck Doctors on the Dave Ellswick Show one oh one point one FM the answer the home of Rush Limbaugh Sean Hannity Jay Sekolo and of course Dave Ellswick all right so Duck and Joe are here to answer your car questions all you have to do is call in eight two three oh nine six five just like Bill has. Here in Little Rock. Hi, Bill. How are you? And uh, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Your question for Joe and Duck. Joe and Duck, uh, I've got a 2010 Nissan Frontier, uh, 78,000 miles. I drive uh, three miles one way and four miles the other way, back and forth to work. Wow. Yeah, I know. Once uh, a week, I take it down to Benton just to drive it on the interstate. I don't really have any issues with this vehicle. It's paid for. I'm more concerned about preventative maintenance on a 2010 Frontier. I said it's less than 80,000 miles. What are some things that I can do to just keep this thing running good? The biggest thing you need to do is make sure you keep it maintenance. Keep the oil change in and keep the air filter. If you do that, you won't have no other problems. 
Yeah, you've got seventy eight k on. It's ten years old, so you're driving about seven thousand eight hundred miles a year. Yep. Not That's, even generally, not even that. Uh, uh-huh. I, when I bought this vehicle, it had fifty four on it. Right. And uh, I got wow. it five years old, so I put uh, twenty four, twenty five, twenty six thousand yeah. miles yeah. on it in yeah. five years. So you ain't you know hard driving any. But the biggest thing is is you driving it to Benton or somewhere on the interstate, so you can dry everything out. That needs to right. be drove, driven far enough to come and operate and temp and go through a drive cycle. Yeah. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about maintenance. You ask about that. No more than you're driving that. You need to have the oil and filter changed on that every six months, regardless of the mileage. Yeah. Because you I get moisture you. inundation in that oil from starting it and shutting it off and temperature changes and and, and that oil uh, will get moisture in it and, and it and it breaks the oil down. So. I would do it right, every it six months and just keep it at that schedule. Forget the mileage. Just yeah, just do it every six year. months. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, I won't. I won't hit. A, uh, it's full synthetic. Yeah. I won't hit the five thousand mark in a year. No. Yeah. So I do it every six months, and then you're safe with that. And, uh, and when that inspect, you know, whoever does that oil service for you, they need to do an inspection. Like Duck said, check the air filter and the cabin air filter, wiper blades, belts, yeah, hoses. Just, just give it a good looking over every time. Check all the fluids on it, and if it needs something, you know, if it looks like it's a regular service interval for something, just get it done. You yeah, know, you're taking good care of it. It all yeah. lasts no a long time. You know, any sensors or anything like that that uh, have a uh, like a life expectancy. If they have it, if that vehicle has an issue with any sensor on the engine, it's going to set a code and it'll, it, tell it'll, you. It'll, it'll, it'll tell you that it's got a problem with it. Yeah, and then you can repair that sensor or, or you know, that oxygen sensor or whatever, mm-hmm. and then go right back to driving. But you driving it down to Benton on the interstate and getting it up operating temperature, what that does, that drives all the moisture out of the exhaust and everything. Right, and that's really why why I do that is just to make sure because I don't want my uh, exhaust uh, rusting out. And it will because no more you're driving it. Well, you know, you go four or five miles to work. If it never really gets warmed up, that's not good on it because, like we talked about earlier with the gentleman never about the and open and closed loop. loop, if it doesn't warm up and get to 180, it's not going to change loop status and it's going to run off the coolant temp instead of the O2s. And when it runs off coolant temp, it runs richer. So you could get more some, fuel to it. You could get a little uh, loss of fuel economy and get a little fuel inundation in that oil and break it down too. So you're back to the six month maintenance, you know. I got you, and I sit. I sit in my driveway for two, three minutes before I even pull out. So I, I let it get up. Uh, it's the needle still doesn't move, but yeah. at least I've uh, let it, it warm up. up a little bit. Yeah. Cold starts are the worst thing on an engine. Badly, and, and they're really bad if you start them cold and shut them off cold. Yep. You do that gotcha. five or six times, and and you can have some issues with. Uh, unburned fuel getting down in there and breaking oil down and stuff like that. Yeah, you that. can have issue with the spark plugs never drying off. That's correct. You know, by you All driving right. it to Benton is the best thing you can do. All right. Well, I thank you very much, guys. Thank All right, you, Bill. Bill. Thank you for the call. That's interesting. I mean, if if you're not driving that much, if you're just driving short distances, you can cause yourself issues. Problems. Yes. You know, you got to keep that in mind, and you're right. Mm. It's good that he's driving down the pit. It is. Thing yes. to remember on a fuel-injected engine about a cold start, it doesn't have a choke. So it reads ambient temperature. For instance, if your vehicle's sitting outside and it's 15 degrees, it's reading 15 degrees on that coolant temp. And it knows, the processor knows how much fuel to spray in that engine to start it at 15 degrees. And as that engine warms up, that coolant temp raises the temperature, that processor leans the fuel mixture out. 
So if you do a cold start and don't let it warm up and do another real cold start and then another one, you can cause, cause the spark plugs to get gas fouled and, and, and fuel gets unburned fuel, gets down into the cats. Into the cats, it's not good on them. It'll damage them. Also gets biased by the rings because it's running rich all the time, and it'll deplete your oil. So, how, how many times, Joe, have we seen it where they come in and it's running bad, herking and jerking, and you put the monitor on it, look, and it says 40 below zero on the temp? That's it. It's it's trying to run with that kind of temperature. It's going to dump mega amounts of fuel it's in there. pour it to it. And, and you know, then you, put a, you go in there and put a temperature sensor in it, and all the problem goes away. Yeah. Or you do like me, and you have a fuel injector go bad, and it dumps a ton of fuel. Fills and you got you got some uh, catalytic cats. converters that yeah, have problems. You got a fuel pump putting sixty pound of pressure on that sticking injector open. It's like a water hose with a nozzle on the end that you can't shut the nozzle off. And it's spraying wide open, and, and and you let go of it, and it's bouncing all over. You're chasing <laughs> it. You're trying to find it and fix it. And it hits you upside the head. <laughs> yeah. gotcha. All right, we'll come back. We'll take more of your calls. We've got other things that we can talk about as well. If you own a Tesla, we'd like to hear from you today. 823-0965. 823-0965. It's the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM. The Answer, home of the Rush Limbaugh Show. And soon, starting next week, starting Monday, the home of Sean Hannity at uh, 2 o'clock and at 5 o'clock, home of Jay Sekulow. I'll be on in the morning from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. right here on your favorite radio station. 25 minutes till 5 on a Wednesday, hump day, middle of the weekday, over the hill day. day. That's what it is. We're closer to Friday than we were on Monday. This is the last show of uh, Duck and Joe here on the Dave Ellswick Show in the afternoons. Because next week on Wednesday at 8 o'clock in the morning. Early birds. They'll be here to, to talk car questions with you. Yep. So uh, tell your friends and your neighbors, Dave Ellswick Show, 6A to 9A, Monday through Friday. And I'm looking forward to it and uh, and doing it. And I'll give you all the traffic and all the weather and all the news that you need. You don't do the traffic, underway. Dave? No, I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do it in a helicopter. Listen. There he is. There you go. From we way up here over Little Rock. Got yeah. <laughs> it down pat. <laughs> but and just, you know who who I got that from? That's out of Bob Newhart's old comedy. Yeah, when he was, yeah. When he did stand-up. When he did stand-up. He stand would up. do that. Hilarious. Yeah. Between that and playing the, uh, he also uh, did the, uh, the thing where he was uh, the janitor at the Empire State Building when Kong was climbing up it, and he was... He was calling the, the police to tell him that there was like an eighty foot gorilla on the side of the, <laughs> on, the side of the building. on the side of the building. It's it, hilarious stuff. He very, was very hilarious funny. anyway. He's great comedian. Yeah, he was great hilarious. comedian. So Dave, you know, here in a few weeks we're going to get uh, Scott from the College of the Ozarks down at Malvern. That's going to be fun. The, excuse me, College of the Warsaw. Excuse me. Okay, uh, he's going to come in. He is the trainer for CDL truck driving to get your CDL driver's license. So if you're thinking about being a, a truck driver or you've thought about it, you go, I don't know if that's for me, he'll explain it all to you from A to Z. He'll, he'll be here to answer all your questions. If you've got questions about it, just give him a call. He can answer them because uh, he is the one that does all that. If you flunked your test, he'll be the guy to call and ask why. Yeah, yeah that's good. Well, my son-in-law passed his test, but I can't get him to go out 
and talk to anybody about being a truck driver. And I don't understand why. He says, ah, you know, I don't know how they pay. And they say they're going to pay you like 40 cents a mile or whatever. He doesn't understand how that all works. And it'd be nice if somebody can explain that on the air. Well, it's 40 cents a mile. So if you go 10 miles, that's $4. Mm -hmm. So if you go 10 miles and you're going 60 miles an hour, it takes you how many minutes to do that, Dave? Don't ask me now, man. Ten. I've been up all the day. Ten minutes. Okay. All right. And he's going to make how much an hour? You just said he's going to make. That's correct. He's going to make how much? Four dollars per ten minutes? For ten miles. So, okay. So it's going to take him ten, ten minutes, minutes to drive so ten miles. You're looking at That's $24. Yeah. If you take it and you break that down to 60 minutes. And that's $24 an hour. That's correct. That's not bad take. No, it's not. Not anymore. And Dave, as you know, there's people out there crying for truck drivers. I know. I I know, and I don't understand drivers. why people are averse to it. You know, and, and that's what I was talking to Scott this morning because he's got one of his his uh, Freightliner that he trains in. There again, Joe, he's got the EF problems. So what is, you know, Yeah. he, they may be. Probably on his, it's because of the stopping and going so much. They know? may be on a parking lot because they got yeah. a big old parking lot that they back around on, you know, because mm-hmm. he trains them how to back up and everything. And, you know, right. and they may be there all day idling, you know, pull up, back up, pull up, back up. Right. You know, and Scott's real good about uh, making it gin. He's real good about late in the afternoon. He'll pull it over and kick it up on gin, make it go into, you know, manual gin. But, uh. That's cleaning the system, folks. He called me yesterday, and he said, hey, I got a yellow light on. I said, well, pop it up on a dash and tell me how many codes you got. He pops it up. He said, I got six codes, and they're all exhaust. I said, set it out there and gin it, and let's see what happens. So he called me back this morning, and he said, well, I got the yellow lights and the red lights on now. So I sent Ed down there to see if we could force gin it to get it to the shop, but couldn't even force gin it. Never never would come up. It's so stopped up. Okay. So we got to pull the DEF on it and the CAD on it and the DOC and have them cleaned. All right. So, so I'll send a record to get it in the morning. The other thing my son-in-law always says is that, well, I don't, I want to be home at night. Well, you can get with trucking companies that you'll be home at night or oh, yeah. you can get long haul. Now you get paid, mm-hmm. you get paid probably better on a long haul yep. than you you're going to do on being home every night. You do, but, but there's people, I mean, there's people locally that's crying for people to work, to drive a truck. All right. Because truck drivers are shortage right now. Truck drivers have been shortage for 10 years. And you can make good money. You think about $24 an hour, you do the math. Take that times money. 40 hours. You know, that's per week, folks. That's not bad. The government will love you to it for it, too, because they're oh, going to yeah. take a good portion. They get their share <laughs> first. <laughs> they're going to do that. All right. It's 20 to 5. Let's get uh, Ed, Ed is here in Little Rock. Let's bring him up. Hi, Ed. How are you? Welcome to the Dave Ellswick Show. What's the problem, my man? Hey, Ed. Hey, how, how y'all doing? We're, We're good. good. Hey, this might be the dumbest question you, you, you ever heard about. A tr- uh, I got a, a, a 2019 Dodge pickup truck. And in the morning, when it's cold, when I make a turn, I feel cold air coming into the truck. Is that? You, you, have you ever heard anything like that? What 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 kind of Dodge truck is this? It's a fifteen hundred Ram. Okay, and you feel cold air come in from the AC vents or the floor vents or? I don't know where it's coming in. It's 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 like 
when I'm getting off the interstate, I, I get off the arm and make a turn onto you know the side street. Are you going right yeah. or left or to the right most of the time? And and you're going at a low speed. Yes, sir. Well, the only thing I can think of is it's got a fresh air vent up there, and when you make that turn, the air must be catching. Uh, I'm gonna say some of the body and forcing it in through the yeah, fresh it has air to be. Vent. Yeah. Forcing it open, you right. know. Yeah, that's the only thing right. I can think of because there's nothing else that jumps out at me. There's nothing else there, really, to yeah. it. Yeah, it's a strange thing. I just I've never seen a truck do. I mean, a vehicle do that before. Yeah, it's unusual. You don't. You, I've never seen it before. Is, uh, is that something where he's got to bring it back? And every, bring you have the AC system turned off at this time. Uh, what's that now? I'm sorry. You have the AC system turned off. Or do you oh, have your heater on? I defroster on, the AC light comes on. I guess that's normal. Yeah. Yes. But but uh, there's, okay. there's only one other thing I can think of. It's low on coolant. And it's turning low around catching air. Yeah, because yeah, because moderately low coolant level, what it'll do when you make that turn, if it if it uh sloshes over, cavitates and it doesn't and it stops pumping the hot water, the air will turn cold. Quickly. But that's right. the, the yeah, only I, two I, things I, I, I can think of. Yeah, check your levels. Yeah. Okay. I bet that coolant hey, level might, might uh, be just a little bit low. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I heard you all talking about tr- uh, tr- truck driver there. I've been driving truck 28 years, man. Okay. Good. It's you good, like that? good business. You like doing it? Yeah, I, I, I drive locally. Now, I drove uh, tw- uh, tw- 24 years for Snyder over the road. But uh, I've, I've always had a job, man. I've never, I mean, you can quit tomorrow and find a job within two hours. Right? <laughs> you can quit do, one minute and be working the next. Do, uh-huh. do you have good benefits? Uh, yeah, where I'm working now, yeah, I, I do all right. I mean, yeah. I had a lot better be- benefits before Obamacare came along, but that changed everything. Yeah, everybody did. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way that worked. Thanks for your call. We appreciate Thank it. You. Appreciate Let's move it. on because we've got a lot of people calling in today. We got Calvin. Calvin is in Little Rock. Let's get Calvin up. Calvin, how are you? Hey, guys. How you doing? We're Pretty doing good. fantastic. Uh, long, uh, Joe's long time no here on the radio. Um, I've been away for a while. In fact, um, about 10 years ago over on another station that we won't talk about, okay. uh, <laughs> you gave me some advice. I had an 01 Ford Escape that uh, I traded off um Five years ago, with four hundred and eight thousand miles on it, uh, heard you talking about some oil. You know, you, you preferred to use Castrol uh, motor oil in it, and that's what I started using. And it let me get four hundred eight thousand miles on that. Fantastic, that's great. Uh, since then, I've traded off. I've got a twelve uh, Toyota Rav four <clears throat> with a four cylinder, two point five liter, and um, I'm up to one hundred seventy one thousand miles. What do you recommend staying with the Castrol, like a synthetic, a synthetic blend? Or what to uh, what do you recommend that I use this thing to get another four hundred thousand mile vehicle? Well, I, I'm be honest with you. You need to stay with what it was born with, far as what kind of oil and okay what weight because your oil life monitor in that 2012, your 01 didn't have one, but the oil yes. life monitor in that 2012 is based okay. off of the, whether it's conventional, a synthetic <clears throat> blend, a full synthetic, what it was born with, and that exact weight. If you stay with that, that oil life monitor is really accurate because it's a calculated value. It's not just mileage. Okay. It's engine hours. It's RPM. It's in stop-and-go traffic or highway. It calculates all that and does oil depletion rate off that. But you have to keep the oil that it was born with in it. Now, right now, okay. uh, me and Duck and some of the other guys, we don't do castrol anymore. We've moved on. 
what we what we're selling right now, me and Duck, is uh, parts master oil, but it's made by Valvoline, okay. and it's a good quality oil. And oil has changed okay. so much in the past ten years that if you have a synthetic oil, I don't care really about who makes it as long as it's a full synthetic. It's a quality product. Yeah, isn't it, it's Doug? a quality oil. Yeah, okay. and and that's the biggest thing nowadays. Is it's a quality product. Okay. You stick with a name well, brand, here, you'll be good. Here, probably about oh, uh, when I crossed the hundred thousand mile mark on it, the place I take it to said that it had to have he he it had to have a synthetic oil in it. And I fought and fought and fought with him, and then finally he said he wasn't going to do it unless I put a synthetic into it. So I I switched over to the Castrol synthetic. So, but I, I don't. I think uh, Toyota. You, don't they use uh, and do they use Penn's oil? Uh, Ever manufacturers kind of honeyed up with some oil manufacturers. Some yeah. of them say okay. Castrol. Some of them say uh, Mobile One. Some of them are Shell, and the list goes on and on. But if you get a name okay. brand oil, you can pick out the brand that you would like, and it'll run fine in there and give you good quality without service. any trouble. That's correct. Okay. Well, I've been using the Castrol uh, synthetic blend, so I'll, I guess I'll switch over to the full synthetic on it now and stick with that then. <laughs> what What was the vehicle born with? We're back to my first statement. Whatever yes. it was I born with. I don't remember. With, I, I, I don't remember. I tell you what, if you'll call me at the shop tomorrow, look I'll it up look and find it up out. for you, okay? Okay. Excellent. Because that oil life monitor needs that exact kind and weight of oil in there to be accurate on the yes. monitor. There okay, you go, I Calvin. I changed the weight of oil. I haven't changed the weight of oil at all. I'm still running 520 in it, or 530, excuse me. Well, that's that's 530 fine. 530 is what it says on the cap, and that's what I'm still using. If it's a synthetic blend or a conventional or a full synthetic, I can tell you, because if you change that any at all, it's going to affect whether or not that oil life monitor is accurate. Okay. Right. I have not changed the weight, like I say, just mm-hmm. just uh, from the regular oil to a synthetic, so. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Calvin, give him give him a call in the morning, and he'll talk with you. Yep. And you'll be well on your way to another four hundred thousand mile. All right, guys. Appreciate you. All right. Talk to you later. Let's go Bye. to Keith. Keith, how are you? Welcome to the Dave Ellswick Show. Yeah. Good afternoon. I just got a comment for the first caller. Not that this is going to apply, but I got a twenty eighteen Rogue, and last time I had it serviced, it was after that I noticed some cold air coming in when there shouldn't have been. All it was is, while well, I looked, uh, they apparently didn't tighten the cabin air filter cover. The cover was well enough. Possibility. So vibrated out, and that's where the cold air in my car was coming from. May not help him at all, but that's all I wanted to say. All Thank right. you. Well, we appreciate, appreciate that. Thank Keith. you very much for calling in. Let's take a break, then we'll come back. We've got more callers here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Busy day here with Joe and Duck. If you have a question, now's the time to call. We're down to about seven minutes left. So uh, 823-0965. Let me see that again. 823-0965. You can call in and they'll try to answer your question. You wanted to say something about what Keith said dealing with that cold air. Yeah, and and it goes back to uh, the gentleman on the Dodge truck, Ed, too, you know. Keith could be on to something there because that uh, some of those access doors on the uh, cabin air filter are underneath the hood by the cowl vent, right, yep. Doug? And if, I mean, it's hard for us to predict human error, but if they're not installed properly, you could get some, that door could be flopping around. And yeah, when he's making that out. right-hand turn, it could open up and let the yeah. air pour through it. And then when he straightens back up, it shuts back up. Yeah. So, it, 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 you know. But it's very possible. But something like that, it'd be hard for us to say that. Well, somebody ain't got the door on because we don't know that. Yeah. So, you know. 
Yeah, but, best, you know, best thing to do is just come by and put one of us in the truck and let's go for a ride. That's it. I mean, noises and, and, and vibrations and uh, anything that takes more of a feel than, than even even if you have a vibration in a tire or a wheel, a lot of times we can drive it and do a road test on it and we can tell you whether it's tire or wheel or if it's a drive shaft or if it's an axle or something like that. You right know, up. you remember when they had them Dodge Caravans, people would talk about when they first take off at real low speed yeah it, you know it's Shake. like you had a had a tar out of balance and mm-hmm. and there was people put they put new tires on the cars and they done everything you go in and put a cv axle and it goes away yeah nissan uh, had a little issue with their with that with some of their axles on the rogues and stuff like that yep a lot of manufacturers did actually yeah, most but, time it was in the plunge joint when they did that yep all right let's talk to terry let's go right. terry is in little rock hi terry how are you Doing great. How are y'all this afternoon? We're fantastic. What's your question for Duck and uh, Joe? All right. I have a 2001 GMC Yukon XL, and the the front air works good, hot and cold, but the rear air only does cool. I can have it on heat, hot as it'll go, and all I get is cool air. Well, I can just about tell you what's wrong with that. I knew you could. That's why I called you guys. <laughs> it, it's got a blend door actuator back there too, because in the back. It, if you if you have rear AC, you have rear heat, and yes. that actuator in the back that works that uh, temperature select works just like the front ones. And it's not uh, shut. Okay. When you say the front air is working, that tells us the compressor's got full charge on it, and the AC compressor's working, and everything up there is working. When you select the rear and select your temperature. I believe it's probably that door's not closing all the way, and it's blending in some of that heater air with that AC air, and it's going to be cool, not cold. Yep. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's true. It is cool. Uh, and it just did it like it worked fine, and then boom, it didn't. So I, I'll bet you that actuator's just stuck. Yeah. Now, you can hook a scan tool up to that, and you can work those actuators with the scan tool, and you can actually go it. back there and pull the cover off, and you can watch it run because it's – in the right-hand rear compartment of that, and that right side cover is not that hard to take off to look at. No. Okay. And it's a relatively okay. well, minor labor repair to put that actuator on. I think it pays like six or seven-tenths. Yeah, that's an hour. <laughs> yeah, and you'll spend an hour checking it and, and then putting it in, and then the actuator, I think, is probably 70, 80 bucks, something like that. Yeah. And so everybody okay. that be in the rear of your car won't be wearing heavy coats anymore. <laughs> That would be good. Yeah, nobody will ride with me. So that's kind of a plus. Yeah, that's I a really bad thing sometimes. sometimes. Yeah. All right, Terry. Thanks for calling Thank in. You, we Terry. appreciate you. So much. All right, 823 That's the phone number, 823 we got time for one more call here on the Dave Ellswick Show. And we got Bruce from Cabot, a fellow Cabotian. How you doing, Bruce? I'm doing well, thank you. What's your question? I've got a, I've got a question for you. I've got a 17 Toyota Sienna. When I uh, go around a corner or do a slow down like for a, a yield sign and then accelerate, I have a hesitation. And all I get from the dealership is that it's normal. When I've called, I've called the people locally and uh, the offices and they just tell me it's normal. I, I don't. I, I'm. I'm. I, I would have to drive your vehicle. To, is this a half second hesitation or one and a yeah. half second, something like that? Yes, sir. Which one? Half uh, second or one and a half? Sometimes it gets you in a 
jam. Okay. Uh, now, when it hesitates, does the engine rev up? It just won't go or what? No, sir. No, sir. It, it just, just won't rev it's up? like there's no response. No response. And this is on a left or a right turn? A uh, right turn. And a left turn, it doesn't do it. Just on the right turn? Uh, I haven't really noticed. Okay. Uh, it's consistent on the right turns. Now, in the same spot in the road every day, then on your commute, correct? No, it's my wife's car. I already ever drive it. Okay. okay. Well, I'm sure that uh, that's generally what you have is on your commute is somewhere in there. Uh, I'd like to drive the vehicle. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't tell you whether I think that's normal or abnormal. But I can tell you this, that if there is, if that's a normal thing, we've got some databases we can go to. We can look up technical service bulletins, yes. and it'll have something in there on that because you can't be the only one complaining about it. And if you no. are, then that is not normal. You see where no. I'm at on that? And you, so, and, you, and you definitely want to get it fixed if it, can, it could leave you out yeah. with your, you know, your your underwear out in the wind yeah because you know you got oncoming you got oncoming cars coming or something now a a lot of the toyotas and stuff like that these late models they have what they call a a throttle body learn procedure and if that thing has had any work done on it at any time they may have failed to do that like a battery put in it or anything well it's done since it's new and we've got it now it's thirty thousand miles on it yeah just i I like to see it myself be honest with you if you come by i'd like to drive it where you live at? He is in Cabot. In Cabot. Okay, come yeah. on. Yeah, come on down and go to Joe's. That's where I go. He's on Crystal Hills Road right off of I-40. You know, bring the car down and let him take a look at it. It won't take him I long like to diagnose it. See what's going on with the scanner on it look at some data. I'd, yeah, that's I'd what you need, the scanner that, on right. it see what it's doing. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thank you all for your Thank help. you. All right. Thanks Thank a lot. Yeah, you... you some of the stuff you got to look at and see what the yeah, some of specifications a, are. Yeah, and you got to get a scanner on it, and then so you can see all the data in it. But right. you need to fix it because if it's hesitating so much, a, a second, second and a half, cars That's, like for our, where I live out on Highway Five, you don't want a second and a half hesitation when you're pulling you're out of my over. subject. You're going to get hit. What well, I want to tell everybody when I was talking about data, uh, looking it up and doing some research on it. A lot of times manufacturers have a problem, and what they'll do, they'll go in there and they will update their software package to correct issues like yes. that, right, Doug? Yes, every day. So we would look that up and say, customer complaint is this. Well, when you uh, program it with this program right here to help offset that, because some of the hesitations and drivability concerns are not prevalent down south, but they are up north, and what's up north is not down south. That's correct. All right, we're out of time, guys. Thank you, Dave. Joe and Duck here. Guys, thanks for coming in. Lots of calls today. Thank you, Dave. And, uh, hey, a good job to get now. Be a truck driver. Yes. We'll, we'll talk about that here in the near future when somebody comes in to talk about what it takes to be a truck driver. I got the news coming up, and we're going to head back to the Senate here on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer.
right, moving into the final hour of the Dave Ellswick Show for a Wednesday, hump day, middle of the weekday, over the hill day, closer to Friday than we were on Monday. Tomorrow, J.R. Davis will join us in the first hour. We'll probably have some other people come in and talk about what's going on with the impeachment. We'll join the Senate. The questioning uh, period will still be going on tomorrow. Uh, the way it's looking right now, it looks like a vote will come up on Friday. That seems to be what we're looking at here uh, in the near immediate future. And if that's the case, we'll have it live right here on our station. So uh, keep that in mind as well. Remember, I move to the mornings starting Monday. I'll start off at uh, 6 a.m. on Monday morning and go until 9 a.m. Then Gallagher from 9 until 11. Rush from 11 to 2. Sean Hannity from 2 to 5 and from 5 to 6. Jay Sekulow will be part of the uh, show now at 101.1 FM. Uh, the answer, the most conservative talk radio station in the state. I, I will hold us up against anybody as far as talk shows go here. I hope you'll just join me and then just kind of put some super glue on your radio dial and keep it right where it's at, where uh, your digital, everything digital set up. Just just glue it right there. Keep it right here at 1011 FM, the answer. All right, let's go back to the Senate, give you some time to hear it. It's not like it was in the last last week when we were listening in the beginning of this week when we were listening to the managers from the House and then the defense team uh, giving you long, you know, um, soliloquies uh, about different things. Now it's questions, questions coming from the senators about for the managers and for the president's team and answers on that. With that in mind, let's head back to the Senate. Day and has been very clear. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. So, Mr. Chief Justice. The Senator from Maryland. Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question to the desk for the President's counsel and the House managers. All right. The, the question's being passed up. That's where this, this quiet time comes. The Chief Justice opens the question, he reads it, then whoever's going to answer it has to move to the podium. So there'll be some quiet moments. Don't think you lost the station. You haven't. The question uh, uh, to both parties, the House managers will go first. What did National Security Advisor John Bolton mean when he referenced whatever drug deal Sondland and Mulvaney are cooking up on this, end quote, and did he ever raise that issue in any meeting with President Trump? Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, when John Bolton, uh, and this is according to Dr. Hill's testimony, brought up the drug deal, uh, it was in the context of a July 10th meeting at the White House. There were two meetings that day. There was a meeting that Ambassador Bolton was present for, and then there was a follow-on meeting after Ambassador Bolton abruptly ended the first meeting. In the first meeting, the Ukrainians naturally wanted to raise the topic of getting the White House meeting that President Zelensky so desperately wanted. 
Uh, And after raising the issue, at some point, Ambassador Sondland said, no, no, we've got a deal. Um, They'll get the meeting once they announce the investigations. And this is the point where Ambassador Bolton stiffened. Uh, Now, you can look up uh, Dr. Hill's exact words. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here. But this is the point where Ambassador Bolton stiffens and he ends the meeting. Uh, Hill then goes, follows Sondland and the delegation into another part of the White House where the meeting continues between the American delegation and the Ukrainian delegation. And there it's even more explicit because in that second meeting, Sondland says, brings up the Bidens specifically. Um, Hill then goes to talk to um, Bolton and informs him what's taken place uh, in the follow-on meeting. Uh, And Bolton's response is, go talk to the lawyers uh, and let them know I don't want to be part of this drug deal that Sondland and Mulvaney have got cooking up. So at that point, that specific conversation is a reference to the quid pro quo over the White House meeting. Now, we know, of course, from other documents and testimony about the quid pro quo about the White House meeting uh, and all the efforts by Giuliani to make sure that the specific investigations are mentioned in order to make this happen. Um, But don't take my word for it. Uh, We can bring in John Bolton and ask him exactly what he was referring to when he described the drug deal. Um, Now, did Bolton describe and discuss this drug deal with the president? Well, it certainly appears from what we know about this manuscript that they did talk about the freeze on aid. Um, And whether John Bolton understood and at what point he understood that the drug deal was even bigger and more pernicious than he thought, that involved not just the meeting, but it involved the military aid, there's one way to find out. And I would add this uh, in terms of Mr. Mulvaney. Maybe I'll add it later. (laughs) Mr. Chief Justice. As two and a half minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Senator, for the question. The The question asks... Um, about what Ambassador Bolton meant in a comment that is reported as hearsay by someone else saying what he supposedly said. What we know is that there are conflicting accounts of the July 10th meeting at the White House. Uh, Dr. Hill says that she heard Ambassador Sondland say one thing. He denies that he said that. Dr. Hill says she went and talked to Ambassador Bolton, and Bolton said something to her about what was said in the meeting where he wasn't there, but he was saying something about it, calling it a drug deal. And what he meant by that, I'm not going to speculate about. It's it's a hearsay report of something that he said about a meeting that he wasn't in, characterizing it some way, and I'm not going to speculate about what he meant by that. Thank you. The senator from North Dakota. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I have a question for myself, also for Senator Portman and Senator uh, Bozeman. And it's for the President's Council, and I'm sending it to the desk. The question from the senators is as follows. In September of 2019, the security assistance aid was released to Ukraine. 
Yet the House managers continue to argue that President Trump conditioned the aid on an investigation of the Bidens. Did the Ukrainian president or his government ultimately meet any of the alleged requirements in order to receive the aid? Mr. Chief Justice. Thanks, Senator, for the question. Uh, and, and the very short answer is no. <laughs> uh, I, but I'll explain. And, and I think that's clear. And I think we, we demonstrated in our presentations on Friday uh, and Monday that the aid were, was released, the aid flowed, uh, there was a meeting. Uh, at the UN General Assembly. There was a meeting previously scheduled in Warsaw, uh, precisely as President Zelensky had suggested, uh, and there was never any announcement of any investigations uh, undertaken regarding uh, the Bidens, Burisma, the 2016 election. Uh, no statements made, no investigations announced began uh, by the Ukrainian government. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Chief Justice. The senator from Virginia. Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question to the desk for the House managers. The question is, do you know about additional information related to Russia disseminating President Trump's or Rudolph Giuliani's conspiracy theories? Should the Senate have this information before we deliberate on the articles of impeachment? Um, Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, uh I think there are three categories of relevant material here. Um, the first you do have access to, and that is the supplemental testimony of Jennifer Williams. Uh, and I would encourage you all to read it. Uh, I think it sheds light very specifically on the Vice President uh, and what he may or may not know vis-a-vis -vis, uh, this scheme. So I would encourage you to read that um, submission. There is a second body of intelligence uh, that the committees have been provided that is relevant uh, to this trial that you should also read. Uh, and we should figure out the mechanism uh, that would permit you to do so um, because it is directly relevant to the issues we are discussing uh, and pertinent. There is a third category of intelligence, too, which raises a, a very different problem, and that is that the intelligence communities are for the first time refusing to provide uh, to the intelligence committee. Um, and that material has been gathered. Uh, we know that it exists, but the NSA uh, has been um, advised uh, not to provide it. Uh, now, the director says uh, that this is the director's decision, but nonetheless there is a body of intelligence that is relevant to requests that we have made. Um, 
that is not being provided. And that raises a very different concern than the one before this body, and that is, are now other agencies like the intelligence community that we require to speak truth to power, that we require to provide us the best intelligence, now also withholding information um, at the urging of the administration. Um, and that is, I think, a deeply concerning uh, and new phenomenon. That problem we've obviously had with other departments that have been part of the wholesale obstruction, but it now uh, is rearing its ugly head with respect to the IC. But the shorter answer to the question on, apart from Jennifer Williams, are there other relevant materials? The answer is yes. Uh, and I would encourage that you and we work together to find out how you might access them. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Majority Leader. Mr. Chief Justice, the next uh, two questions, one from each side, will be the last before we break for dinner. I would ask that following the next two questions, the Senate stand in recess for 45 minutes. Thank you. Senator from Alabama. I'll send yes. a question to the desk. Question is directed to counsel for the president. How does the non-criminal abuse of power standard advanced by the House managers differ from maladministration, an impeachment standard rejected by the framers? Where is the line between such an abuse of power and a policy disagreement? Thank you very much for that question, because that question, I think, hits the key to the issue that's before you today. When the framers rejected maladministration, and recall that it was introduced by Mason and rejected by Madison on the ground that it would turn our new republic into a parliamentary democracy where a prime minister, in this case a president, can be removed at the pleasure of the legislature. Remember, too, that in Britain, impeachment was not used against the prime minister. All you needed was a vote of no confidence. It was used against lower-level people. And so maladministration was introduced by Mason, and Madison said, no, it would turn us. It was just too vague and too general. Now, what, what is maladministration? If you look it up in the dictionary and you look up synonyms, the synonyms include abuse, corruption, misrule, dishonesty, misuse of office, and misbehavior. Even Professor Nicholas Bowie, a Harvard professor who was in favor of impeachment, so this is an admission against interest by him. He's in favor of impeachment. He says abuse of power is the same as misconduct in office. And he says that his research leads him to conclude that a crime is required. By the way, the congressman was just completely wrong when he said, I'm the only scholar who supports this position in the 19th century which is much closer in time to when the framers wrote, Dean Dwight of the Columbia Law School wrote that the weight of authority, by which he meant the weight of scholarly authority and the weight of judicial authority, this is 1867, the weight of authority is in favor of requiring a crime. Justice Curtis came to the same conclusion. Others have come to a similar conclusion. You asked what happened between 1998 and the current to change my mind? What happened between the 19th century and the 20th century to change the mind of so many scholars? Let me tell you what happened. What happened is that the current president was impeached. 
If, in fact, President Obama or President Hillary Clinton had been impeached, the weight of current scholarship would be clearly in favor of my position because these scholars do not pass the shoe on the other foot test. These scholars are influenced by their own bias, by their own politics, and their views should be taken with that in mind. They simply do not give objective assessments of the constitutional history. Professor Tribe suddenly had a revelation himself. At the time when Clinton was impeached, he said, oh, the law is clear. You cannot, you cannot charge a president with a crime while he's the sitting president. Now we have a current president. Professor Tribe got woke. And with no apparent new research, he came to the conclusion, oh, but this president can be charged while sitting in office. That's not the kind of scholarship that should influence your decision. You can make your own decisions. Go back and read the debates, and you will see that I am right that the framers rejected vague, open-ended criteria, abuse of power. And what we had is the manager made a fundamental mistake again. She gave reasons why we have impeachment. Yes, we feared abuse of power. Yes, we feared criteria like maladministration. That was part of the reason. We feared incapacity. But none of those made it into the criteria because the framers had to strike a balance. Here are the reasons we need impeachment, yes. Now, here are the reasons we fear giving Congress too much power. So we strike a balance. How did they strike it? Treason, a serious crime. Bribery, a serious crime. Or other high crimes and misdemeanors, crimes and misdemeanors akin to treason and bribery. That's what the framers intended. They didn't intend to give Congress a license to decide who to impeach and who not to impeach on partisan grounds. I read you the list of 40 American presidents who have been accused of abuse of power. Should every one of them be impeached? Should every one of them have been removed from office? It's too vague a term. Reject my argument about crime. Reject it if you choose to. Do not reject my argument that abuse of power would destroy, destroy the impeachment criteria of the Constitution and turn it, in the words of one of the senators of the Johnson trial, to make every president, every member of the Senate, every member of Congress be able to define itself from within their own bosom. We heard from the other side that every senator should decide, the criteria, should decide whether you need proof beyond a reasonable doubt or proof by a preponderance. Now we hear that every senator should Thank decide you, what abuse of power. Thank you, Mr. Thank Chief you. Justice. President, Mr. Chief Justice. Senator from Maryland. Chief Justice, I have a question on behalf of Senator Markey and myself that I send to the desk for the House managers. The question is as follows. Supreme Court Justice Byron White, in a concurring opinion in Nixon versus United States, 1993, acknowledged that the Senate, quote, has very wide discretion in specifying impeachment trial procedures, end quote, but stated that the Senate, quote, would abuse its discretion, end quote, if it were to, quote, insist on a procedure that could not be deemed a trial by reasonable judges, end quote. If the Senate does not allow for additional evidence and the testimony of key witnesses 
with firsthand knowledge of President Trump's actions and intentions, would a reasonable judge conclude these proceedings constitute a constitutionally fair trial? I think the answer is yes. I don't know that we need to look to the words of a prior justice to tell us that a trial without witnesses is not really a trial. Uh, it's certainly not a fair trial if the House uh, moves forward with impeachment and comes before the Senate and wants to call witnesses and wants to make its case and is told, thou shalt not call witnesses. Um, that's not a fair trial. I think that the American people understand that without reading the case law. Uh, they go to jury duty themselves every year, and they see the first thing that takes place after the jury is sworn in uh, is the government makes its opening statement, the defense makes theirs, and then begins the calling of witnesses. Um, I do want to take this opportunity, though, to respond to Professor Dershowitz's argument while they're fresh. Um, you can say a lot of things about Alan Dershowitz. You cannot say he's unprepared. He's not unprepared today. He wasn't unprepared 21 years ago. Uh, and to believe that he would not have read 21 years ago what Mason had to say or Madison had to say or Hamilton had to say, I'm sorry, I don't buy that. I think 21 years ago he understood that maladministration was rejected, but so was a provision that confined the impeachable offenses to treason and bribery alone was rejected. I think the Alan Dershowitz from 21 years ago understood. All right. So while uh, Schiff talks about Alan Dershowitz, uh, we will break away after that question. The Senate is going to break away for 45 minutes for dinner. Uh, we will not be coming back to join them. Uh, we will take uh, news at the bottom of the hour. And then when we come back, we had uh, Congressman French Hill on earlier today. It was a great interview covering a large group of uh, issues. And we're going to play that back for you as you go home from work today. So there it is. Stick around. More coming your way. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it and i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com